and welcome to Hitting Play, the podcast where we review, analyze, and discuss shows, movies, and other curiosities. I am Scott, and joining me live for the first time is a returning guest, our go-to Star Wars expert, Paul. Paul, welcome back to the show. Good evening, Scott. How are you doing today? Doing good. Nice to, to have you here, making the trip all the way up to, uh, from Pennsylvania just for this episode. Yep, it was a long ride, but it's well worth it. <laughs> we'll see. Uh, well, if you've listened to some of our previous episodes, uh, with the ones with uh, Paul and myself, you know that we love to hate the Star Wars prequels. But uh, there are also some decent moments here and there. So for this episode, with Paul actually in studio here, we are discussing the film that started it all. Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. But uh, this episode is a little special. We're trying something a little different. Uh, while we review the film, we will actually be watching the film. So while this is a regular episode, just like all the others, you can listen to it straight. Uh, but this will have the added bonus of syncing up with the movie. Uh, so don't worry, this review and discussion is not a straight-up commentary track or anything. There won't be any long pauses where we're just listening to the movie. Just think of it kind of as a hybrid episode. So you can pop in your copy of the DVD or the Blu-ray, and uh, or your digital copy, and we'll give you the instructions and uh, how to sync it up. And if you're not in front of your TV or computer screen, uh, just enjoy the show and uh, revel in the misery that we're about to put ourselves through. All right, well, if you have your copy of your Blu-ray or your DVD in, or if you have your digital copy ready to go, what we suggest is bringing it all the way to the Lucasfilms logo. Uh, pause and kind of step frame by frame until the logo is completely gone. We want to stop right at the first frame where it's completely black. And when I say now, hit play, okay? Three, two, one, now. Alrighty. An even longer time ago. In a galaxy far, far away. Yes. Yeah, this is supposed to take place, what, a generation before uh, Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope? Is that uh, how it's being billed as? Yeah, um, I'm not sure how old Luke was supposed to be in uh, A New Hope. But obviously, you take that number minus uh, however many years there were between... Anakin when we meet him in this and when he fathered Luke Please don't say fathered Luke in this <laughs> anymore. I don't want to even think about that uh, Okay, I found here it says that the Phantom Menace actually takes place 32 years BBY and for I guess the Star Wars chronology BBY is before the Battle of Yavin which is that great action sequence at the end of Star Wars which we now call Star Wars episode for A New Hope. Uh, so it's 32 years before episode four. Uh, Attack of the Clones is 22 years. Episode three, 19 years. So, yeah, you know, a generation, I guess you could call it. So we start with this opening crawl, and it's just bewildering. It's all this stuff about trade federation and tax routes and all this garbage. And here... We are seeing Radiant 7, that is a Republic cruiser transport. And it is bringing two Jedi to uh, 
have a meeting with the Trade Federation. Yes, and the, these characters are called Nemoidians, and there's been some debate, uh, kind of sad that people are debating this, but it's kind of weird, like, where these characters get their names from. Some people say, it's actually come, I think two stories have come from Lucasfilms about it. They were saying that one alluded to Captain Nemo, and the other was that it was named after Leonard Nimoy. Uh, knowing George Lucas, he probably gave both answers, probably because he forgot. <laughs> now, up, up, up until this point where the two Jedi come in and make their appearance, I was uh, on board. This looked pretty good. Yeah, I was pumped. I mean, obviously, you know, this was the first Star Wars movie to come out since I knew what Star Wars was. Uh, I was born in 83. Return of the Jedi was released in 83. So... I was psyched. I didn't get to see this opening night, but I saw it the first weekend. I believe it opened on a Wednesday, and I saw it Saturday afternoon. Yeah, I remember seeing... I don't know when I saw this. I usually don't go opening day, and uh, I remember because I think we were both, what, freshmen in high school when this came out, pretty much, right? Uh, I believe so. Yeah. And I just, uh, like you, I was so excited. I, I remember uh, the action figures. Did you collect any of the action figures? I have several things from the movie. I have uh, programs, I have comic books, I have some of the action figures. I remember Toys R Us did a big event to premiere the action figures and they opened up early and I remember actually going there before school. I think it was on, it might have been on a Friday like they had recently for Star Wars Episode 7 toys. They had a Force Friday promotion where they opened up Toys R Us at midnight. I believe they did something similar for this movie, although this came out in May, so these toys might have, yeah, these toys definitely were out while we were in school, and uh, yeah, I went before school, they had uh, juice and cookies for all the kids, and uh, I bought a bunch of these, uh, I didn't think I'd be buying toys for a crappy movie, I thought these would be uh, some things I would treasure, and uh, yeah, <laughs> they got my money. Here we see the uh, Nemoidian Council talking here with Darth Sidious. Uh, that's a new name to us Star Wars fans, but a very similar looking character. Yeah, and I mean, I think we all pretty much knew what this was, uh, but Darth Sidious wasn't explained. There was a lot of things, I should say, that were not explained to the audience. Uh, one thing, uh, kind of a point of controversy about these movies was... The, the voice of these Nemoidian characters, they, uh, the design of them, uh, their, of their clothing at least, was very heavily influenced uh, on a, like an ancient uh, Chinese cultural garb, these robes. And the voice was seen by many as very offensive, uh, offensive stere Asian stereotypes. And uh, this was actually done by an actor named Silas Carson. He did the voice of Newt Gunray. And supposedly, from what I read, he mimicked a Thai actor that read the lines and recorded them. And that was like his take on those line readings. Uh, kind of a strange way of doing things. I, I don't know. People were also upset with the character of Newt Gunray, saying that it was George Lucas's criticism of Newt Gingrich. So they felt that so there were, he was hiding political messages within this movie. You never know. You never know. Here we see our first signs of action. Uh, they tried to kill the Jedi. 
why they didn't just leave them sealed in that room with the poison instead of letting them out. I'm not sure why. <laughs> but uh, now the bridge is a little worried about two Jedi running around with lightsabers. And I remember thinking this part was really cool when Qui-Gon starts cutting through the door with his lightsaber. I'd always, ever since I saw Star Wars as a kid, loved the lightsaber, wish it was a real weapon that I could use, and wondered how it would handle different situations. So uh, getting to see it cut through this metal door was really cool. Yeah, I like this too. So far through this opening scene, like, this was great. And uh, I should mention too, when, when they were sealed in that room with the uh, dioxin gas, as they call it, coming through, that was the only practical effect used in this whole movie. <laughs> wow. Yeah, so from here on out, they're all just CGI effects. All these droids, you know, and the, everything. I believe there was uh, two digital shots hidden in here as well. Uh, episode 2, Attack of the Clones, was the first movie to com be completely shot in digital. Uh, Lucas snuck in a couple of scenes in this. These Nemordian creatures, they were they were supposed to be completely CGI, but uh, they were changed into uh, masks and with actual actors wearing them. And they, they used some animatronic designs that were actually recycled from the movie The Fifth Element, which came out uh, two years previous in 1997. And that was used uh, to model the facial movement and articulate. If you notice, they really don't move their mouth that well. Kind of, they're kind of fish-like in their design. So that was pretty funny. Well, at least they were real masks and not CG. <laughs> so here we get our first scene of uh, Queen Amidala. That was Natalie Portman as a uh, high schooler. And uh, it was pretty funny. I, I remember not really knowing that much about the Star Wars backstory. After seeing episode one, hearing like, oh yeah, that's, that's going to be Luke and Leia's mother. Anakin is going to be Luke and Leia's father. And I'm like, okay, she's like 17 or 18 years old. He's like eight. <laughs> like really, like Lucas, I, I guess if, if you can get somebody like Natalie Portman, who was like a child actress, uh, very accomplished. I think she was in the professional uh, you know, that's that's a great get for him to join the cast. Uh, he could have probably gotten a little older Anakin if he wanted the years to match up a little better. Yeah, um, we'll get into <laughs> Anakin more when we meet him, but I really wish that the prequels had started with an older Anakin. Yes. Great shot of Naboo here. Uh, that Those waterfalls are actually salt. They wow. kind of went in and, and fixed a little bit. We get our first view of Palpatine. He's the uh, the senator that will become the emperor. And like, I thought it was so so great for Lucas that he the the, the actor Ian McDiarmid that he got to play Palpatine was only like thirty something years old in the original trilogy. We always think of him as like this old decrepit man. Right. And so now when these this trilogy came out, he was like in his what late fifties, early sixties. So uh, pretty great that he was able to get to use him for all these movies. Yeah. I think he's the same age as Lucas, actually. Yeah, that was convenient. And here we see Captain Panaka uh, giving Queen Amidala some advice on how to handle this situation. <laughs> More CGI gobbledygook as these uh, Trade Federation 
ships, these landing platforms. No, they're not landing platforms, but they're kind of, they look like it. But, uh, I don't know. Now, now, what do you know about the Trade Federation? Because this was always a confusing point to me. I know very little. I just assumed it was uh, a group that was, you know, their business was trade. And they uh, made their money trading different items across the galaxy. Now, see, like, I, I tried to do some research for this as far as the Trade Federation. Because it was always kind of a confusing point to me. And it doesn't get any easier once you do the research for it. They, uh, some of the, I, I guess the books are connected to it. I don't know how much has been wiped out now that Disney took over and revised the canon. Uh, Sean told me that I guess they're now calling those things, uh, Star Wars Legends. And, uh, yeah, it's just, uh, it's a very confusing thing. They are, the Trade Federation is part of a group of separatists. And we know that they will oppose the Republic, which becomes the Empire. So basically, that's all you need to know. If you want to look at the research and go back, it's really convoluted. Just as convoluted as the opening crawl. And already, this movie has taken a huge <laughs> downturn. Because we have been introduced to the Gungan Jar Jar Binks. Oh, uh, I was out already. That was it. I could not believe... I don't think we ever heard him speak in any trailers or any promotional uh, material. I think this was pretty much where we first hear, heard him talk. And it was just uh, like, are you kidding me? You know, it seems like Lucas wanted to have a character kind of like how Chewbacca was in the original trilogy. And at least that's how it was kind of promoted. Uh, I have the original Vanity Fair article from uh, February 1999. And they told... Uh, the readers, you know, think of Jar Jar Binks as a Gungan, kind of like how Chewbacca was a Wookiee. And, wow, nothing could be further from the truth. It's just uh, just an alien character that he added. I guess that's about the only similarity. And he doesn't look that real. You know, it's like, I'm looking at it right now, and it's just, it's a terrible CGI. Yeah, that has been, for a long time, one of the main complaints I have about the prequels is what the CGI looks like. It's so, it's so cartoonish. Um, these came out a little before Lord of the Rings trilogy came out, but when the Lord of the Rings came out and I saw that and how much CGI was involved with that, it was just so realistic looking, so gritty and it was just very real, like you thought you were in Middle Earth. Yeah. But all the CGI in the prequels just completely takes you out of it. Now, these scenes with uh, with Liam Neeson, Ewan McGregor, and Jar Jar Binks, this is great. This is from the Vanity Fair article entitled The Force is Back. It's by David Camp, and it was from Vanity Fair, February 1999. And just a quote from this, about this scene... It says, uh, Jar Jar's voice was supplied by Ahmed Best. Uh, he was fitted in a specially designed Jar Jar suit. Best was put through Jar Jar's paces, interacting with Neeson and the others while Lucas's cameras rolled. Lucas then reshot the same scenes without Best, with the actors only pretending to interact with the lanky Gungan. Both versions were then sent back to ILM. The first was used purely for reference so that the animators could get a sense of what Jar Jar's movements should look like. The second version 
is what shows up in the finished film, with Jar Jar dropped in as an animated but utterly realistic creature far more convincing than he'd be as a tall actor in a lizard suit. So, Liam Neeson, very accomplished, trained actor, even at this point, same with Ewan McGregor, he was from the movie Train Spotting. he got a lot of critical acclaim. These guys are legit actors, and they were acting with Ahmed Best, who obviously wasn't in a full costume, just, you know, a little bit, but there's something about acting with another person. You know, you, you, can, you can act and react, you know, you get something from your fellow actor, and it helps make a more convincing scene. But Lucas threw that away. He just used those takes for the animators to go, okay, well, this is how he moves. He's going to move his arms like this. And then when they had them acting upon nothing, he dropped Jar Jar in. So the takes that we see are them trying to do their best. And, and they do a pretty decent job. But still, they're acting with nothing. You know, I, I remember seeing, this is from Attack of the Clones, the next one. When uh, Ewan McGregor is <laughs> is talking to the Camino alien, which is like really tall, it's just like a stick with a tennis ball that the poor guy has to act to, you know? Yeah, it's unbelievable. And now we see the leader of the Gungans, Boss Nass. <laughs> uh, as we watch this, we have the the um, subtitles on. I'm so happy that they added. All his uh, little <laughs> idiosyncrasies, his, his, I mean, it, it spelled it TKK, TKK, TKK when he went. Oh my goodness. I was like, really? <laughs> He's a no caring about the, the Naboo. Is a, yeah. I feel bad for the person that had to type these out. <laughs> uh. Another great thing from that article as we watch these, uh, these terrible Gungans. I remember even at the time just being like, it looked like a cartoon, you know? I appreciated what this was. I was so psyched like you to see a Star Wars movie. You know, this was our generation's chance at getting that theater experience that we had heard so much about. Uh, in 1997, when we were middle schoolers, we got to see the the remastered editions back in theaters. But it wasn't the same, because those are movies we had seen over and over and over again. But uh, just referencing that Vanity Fair article again, this is uh, this is from Lucas. He says, I've gotten much better performances out of my aliens this time, says Lucas, who cites the relative backwardness of computer imaging technology in the early 80s as one of the reasons he stopped making Star Wars films. So as we watch Boss Nass, this uh, lizard, uh, giant, I guess bullfrog-like creature, who, how is he related to these Gungan characters? He looks nothing like Jar Jar Binks. I don't know. But, it, you know, it's like, he thinks that that's so great, whereas Chewbacca was a, a human in a suit, and we got more emotion out of Chewbacca than we ever got out of these cartoon characters. It's pretty crazy. According to a uh, Rolling Stone article, Michael Jackson actually was campaigning for the role of Jar Jar Binks. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but uh, Lucas decided that might not be a good idea because... He thought his star status might compromise the film. So uh, instead he found Ahmed Best and uh, introduced him to Michael Jackson to kind of get his, his blessing or his approval to go with Best for that role. That's unbelievable. <laughs> you know, Michael Jackson really wanted to be a part of so many movies. There was the rumor that he wanted to be Spider-Man for the longest time. <laughs> 
so strange. You wonder what that dynamic would be like. I would have liked to see uh, Spider-Man moonwalking up a, the side <laughs> of a building or something. Uh. And now more cartoons as uh, different <laughs> sea creatures are uh, attacking the uh, Jedi and Jar Jar in their bongo, I guess it's yeah, called. Yeah, it's called a bongo. I, I, liked, I actually liked this scene where they said, you know, there's always a bigger fish. That was funny. Now you'll you'll notice there's a growling here of these of these monsters, and uh, Ben Burt, who was the sound technician, also for the original trilogy, Lucas brought him back. That that monster growl is uh, Ben Burt's three year old daughter, and uh, he lowered the frequency for that, which I thought was pretty great. It's amazing how uh, some sound effects come about. You never would have guessed it. Yeah, there's some great... I think the lightsaber was dry ice on, like, aluminum or something. Just kind of, like, rubbed the metal on dry ice, and he got a lot of uh, sounds that way. Blasters were, like, banging on high-tension metal, uh, like, cables. Ben Burt does an amazing job. That's one thing we should say about this movie. As crappy as Lucas's writing and storytelling is for this, the technologically, it's great. Like, the scenes are beautiful, CGI characters, not so much. You know, it's like, there's we can tell there's that uncanny valley they speak of where the closer these uh, CGI creatures get to humanity, the, the less real they look to us. Because there's a subtlety that we can tell with our eye that, you know, something's not right. This isn't a human. But the, the sets, the scenes, so beautifully done. Sound design, everything. While we're on the subject of that, uh, in any of your research, did you look up if uh, this movie won any awards or was nominated for any Academy Awards or anything? It was nominated for a lot of awards. It's hilarious to see like that this thing was actually nominated for Academy Awards, uh, of course, in the technical categories. And mm -hmm. I believe it was the special effect category that it lost to The Matrix, Okay. And I believe it's the first time a Star Wars movie has lost that category. Hmm. You know, it's kind of a, a telltale sign that this was not the same as the trilogy that we had uh, come to love. Well, The Matrix was pretty cool. Oh, yeah. And they, they did that bullet time, mm -hmm. you know, all that stuff. And here we see the Trade Federation Army uh, marching, if you will, floating into the main city of the Naboo. What's the name of this city, Scott? Do you uh, know? I forget. Uh, Thede? Thede, right? Thede, you're right. Yeah. Yep, that's it. So I was like, Thede Palace. I knew that was the name of the palace. And this is, like, look at that set. That to For those just listening, it, it's really heavily influenced by uh, Italian Renaissance design and uh, that Renaissance architecture. It's almost like the Assassin's Creed video games. You know, like that look. It's so beautifully done. Now, in the earlier drafts of this script, the name of this planet, or at least the planet where Queen Amidala comes from, was called Utapau. Does that sound familiar to you, Paul? Uh, yeah, a little bit. Well, it was also used in uh, the early 1970s draft of A New Hope that Lucas wrote. And uh, they finally found a use for it. Lucas put it in Star Wars Episode Three: Revenge of the Sith. Do you remember that planet of sinkholes that uh, Obi-Wan went into to fight Grievous? 
Yes. Okay, that was Utapau. Okay. So they kind of scrapped that whole idea. The queen looks a little different in this scene now, Scott. <laughs> yes, uh, she does. Is there a reason for that? <laughs> there is. There is. Now, did you get this when you were 15 years old watching the movie? Uh, I'm pretty sure I did pick up on the fact that she was looking different now. Um, she, of course, the queen is now being played by Kira Knightley. Uh, and the queen, when she's in times of danger, uh, disguises herself as one of the queen's handmaidens to stay close enough to the action that she can uh, help the queen make the right decisions when she has to, but uh, is still not the target of um, of the enemies. I didn't get this at all. I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, I, I was an honor roll student like you in high school. I, I thought I could be uh, pretty on the take when it comes to this stuff, but man, I didn't understand this at all. Like uh, Pad who Padme was in comparison to Amidala, uh, I knew Natalie Portman played the queen, but I didn't understand like Padme what maybe I was just maybe I was stupid I don't know but it was like I, di I didn't get it I didn't get it now supposedly Kira Knightley resembled each other so much when they were in their full makeup like this that Kira Knightley's mother who visited the set didn't even recognize her own daughter I find that a little hard to believe <laughs> maybe that was just uh you know something that they said uh to trump up the the costume design people and you know and their skills but uh, now you now looking at it you can go okay that's definitely natalie portman to her right dressed as a handmaiden yes now also somewhere i'm not sure which one i'm not it might be to the left of uh, natalie portman in the scene where uh the first scene where we see portman as one of these orange handmaidens but sofia coppola the the very uh famed director and daughter of famed director Francis Ford Coppola, is actually one of these handmaidens. Her name is Sachet, according to uh, my research. Uh, you may also know her as the cousin of Nicolas Cage. Which would have been hilarious in this movie. Now we get some uh, great action between <laughs> Jedi and, uh, and Trade Federation droids. We uh, talked a lot about this in our episode uh, where we broke down the Clone Wars cartoons. Yeah. But uh, same, same deal here. Trade Federation droids are no match for a Jedi with Force powers and a lightsaber. It's like, why bother even sending them? They, and uh, what I love is the scene where he's just like, uh, 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 does not compute. Uh, you're under arrest. Like... <laughs> Who programmed them to joke around a little bit like that? I did not, uh, I don't know. That was weird. That was very weird to me. Now we, uh, we see our first scene of, uh, R2-D2. I remember it got a little applause in the theater when I was there. I don't remember, even though I went opening weekend, I don't remember the theater being really that packed surprisingly i mean i i could be remembering wrong but now for episodes two and three i was a little bit older i had a driver's license and i got to see those opening night and 
you know, the theater was packed, everyone's in full costume, and they got all the inside jokes and stuff, but for this one, I don't remember too many in the theater. Yeah, like I said, I came a little later uh, to the, you know, near us, there's that theater about an hour away with the big screens, so we went there, and uh, yeah, it wasn't completely filled, but still pretty good showing weeks later. Um, this made a ton of money. In fact, just referencing that Vanity Fair article again, they uh, they called it the I believe the most craved film of all time, or at least up to that point. And it certainly was. I mean, the hype was just incredible, so much so that people were buying tickets to see the movie Meet Joe Black, starring uh, Brad Pitt and Anthony Hopkins. They were going to you know leaving work and everything, going to see this movie just for the trailer. And see, once they saw the episode one trailer, they'd leave. <laughs> so you wonder how much mo- how much money uh, Meet Joe Black made just from the ticket sales for this this trailer. That's like such a that would be so great to put out a movie and and get a Star Wars trailer or something t- attached to it, you know. Now, what year was this release? Nineteen ninety nine. Okay. Um, I believe it was as early as 94 or 95 when I first caught wind of there being another Star Wars movie in the works, and I was psyched about it. Um, I remember actually being in a store and seeing uh, the Grand Admiral Thrawn trilogy on the shelves, uh, The Last Command, Heir to the Empire, and I mistook those for what the movies were going to be about. But, you know, learned later down the road that they were actually going to be prequels uh, telling us about how Anakin became Darth Vader. And that was a that was a series of books. Yes, uh, those books uh, have to do with after Return of the Jedi. Um, I'm actually reading Heir to the Empire, the first one right now. And Leia is pregnant with twins. She and Han are married. And Luke is beginning to train her in the ways of the Force. Okay, now now that Disney acquired Lucasfilms, they they kind of announced that a lot of these books were being wiped out of the canon. Uh, I think Sean told me they're now referred to as Star Wars Legends. Yes, the, the new books that are printed actually have legends in white print with a gold banner on top of all of them. Yeah. Now, now, Paul, we've talked about this before, probably on the podcast, but just growing up, you and, and another friend of ours, Stephen, uh, always read the books. Uh, that's something I never did because I always said, canon is the movie. And I was I stood by that. I never uh, wanted to accept any books as being uh, actually part of the story. And uh, I feel happy being vindicated by the, uh, the branding of Star Wars Legends. <laughs> Well, you know, I think they're doing away with, I mean, they're classifying most, if not all of the books that came out before Disney acquired the movies as, as, uh, legends. And I don't think they need to do that with all of the books. Uh, there's Shadows of the Empire, which takes place between episodes five and six. I don't think that did anything, any damage, anything that uh disney would want to change down the road uh i loved the han solo trilogy telling his background story but that of course they made legend because there's the potential of making one of the anthology movies about han solo 
oh. and retelling the story about where Han Solo came from, how he met Chewbacca. So, how I met Chewbacca wasn't that a <laughs> that'd be a, a sitcom, I guess. No, but um, all right. So here we are on Tatooine for the very first time uh, in this movie. It's a very uh, familiar sight, and you know, I thought, okay, now we can kind of redeem this movie. It went a little off the rails with that Gungan nonsense and uh, all the CGI characters. Of course, they bring Jar Jar to Tatooine, so yeah, we we can't escape him. We see now that uh, Panaka has introduced one of the handmaidens sent by the Queen to join Qui Gon Jinn and uh, and R two D two is yeah R two D two is with them. And of course, this handmaiden is what called what Padme Nabari or something. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, and this is Natalie Portman. Now, I didn't make the connection yet, <laughs> watching this as a kid, that this is Queen Amidala. You know, maybe a scene would have been nice where we kind of see the switcheroo for the audience, so like everyone could understand, like, oh, okay, this is the queen going undercover. You know, she's adventurous, like we know her daughter will be. You know, and the doesn't mind getting in the middle of the fray. But no, we're kind of left to not really understand what young girl is who yet. <laughs> oh, oh, look out, Jar. Oh, Jar Jar. Oh. Yeah, he just stepped in some poodoo, I, I believe it's uh, referred to in these movies. Uh, more comic relief for the children. Yeah. Now, I believe George Lucas has three children, and uh, I think they were pretty young when he made this movie and i have to believe that that came into play with him kind of focusing a lot of the scenes and a lot of the characters toward children and having them enjoy the movie yeah which i understand and of course here we get our our introduction to the character of Watto, uh another person who uh another character i should say he's not a person being criticized for uh, being an offensive stereotype. You know, do I think Lucas is a racist? No, I don't, of course. But I think he relied so heavily on these stereotypes, consciously or unconsciously, and it just came out terrible. But, uh, yeah, yeah I understand wanting to make it for kids and adults, kind of like broaden it out, but here we get this goofy stepping in excrement on one hand, and then the other hand we got Senate... Uh, negotiate trade negotiations senate debates and all this kind of stuff it's just made it so broad it appealed to nobody and uh we just heard one of the lines that oh uh, yes was, i'm sorry <laughs> was cringeworthy for me in watching this are you an angel <laughs> really george i mean this is a galaxy far far away why do we have to introduce these terms and things that we're familiar with uh, calling angels, you know, these beautiful mystic <laughs> creatures from a far part of the universe. Now, I got to say something. This is the scene now where Anakin and, and Padme meet for the first time. And uh, there's something weird about this scene. Uh, according to the IMDb trivia, I'll just read it directly. It says, scenes of straightforward dialogue may be comprised of up to six layers of computer composited imagery. In one scene, which is this scene right now, Natalie Portman's best take had been take seven. Jake Lloyd's best take was take one. So the two takes were spliced together, but Lloyd's mouth at the end of the scene is still gaped open. So the same segment, so the same segment from take 15, in which his mouth is closed, is patched in. So when Portman appears to look down from Lloyd instead of up, 
those seconds were run backwards, but they couldn't do that directly because the steam was kind of going up. So the steam was actually going down in reverse. So they, they flipped the steam backwards. And as it's described here, it, the fixes resulted in a seamless scene. But it's just like, it's crazy. And I love the quote here from Liam Neeson. Upon the film's release, he said, We're basically puppets. I don't think we can live with the inauthenticity of movies anymore. <laughs> it's so great. I, I can't believe how much work went into that one little exchange between Anakin and Padme. Oh, yeah. And in, 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 I guess in the blue the Blu-ray commentary for that scene, uh, it's that scene between Anakin and Padme was used uh, as the in the audition. Like that's the the kind they read the parts for and stuff. And they said that Jake Lloyd did not film did not like filming this particular scene, which was pretty funny. Now Jake Lloyd. Now listen, I, I know a lot of people want to slam him for his performance. Okay, he's a kid. Could they have gotten a better actor? Yes. But what are you going to do? He's a kid. I'm not going to, you know, make fun of him. I probably would have done a terrible job in that, in that case. So he's, he, you know, he did better than I could ever do. Yippee! Yeah. Well, you know, and plus he was directed. Those lines, he did not improvise those lines. So we can't make fun of him for that. I've read stories that are kind of sad about him getting bullied in school. Like kids would make lightsaber noises at him when he'd walk by in school and you know, so I don't, I don't want to come down on the kid too hard. I mean, that's, that's got to be tough being a child actor. Yeah, this was the end of his acting career, wasn't it? He appeared in a couple of other things, uh, but as far as big mainstream movies like this, he was in Jingle All the Way previously with the, the great actor Arnold Schwarzenegger. Jingle All the Way. <laughs> now, also throughout these scenes where Qui Gon and Jar Jar. Padme and R2 are, are walking through Tatooine with Anakin, uh, you'll notice that Liam Neeson, or Qui-Gon, is holding this little communicator up to his mouth to communicate back to Obi-Wan on the ship. Mm -hmm. That is a lady's razor that was <laughs> made into a communicator. Uh, I, I'm not sure what it was called. It's some sort of lady's razor. And what's hilarious is when you bought the action figures that came out with this movie... They had these little microchip pedestals. Do you remember those? Mm -hmm. And if you put them on a communicator that you had to buy separately, a communicator base, you could hear lines from the movie from that particular character. And I think my parents bought me that base. Mm -hmm. And now that I look at it, it's a giant lady's razor <laughs> handle. <laughs> it's pretty sad. The, the seller, the alien that was selling the Chuba there that uh, Jar Jar tried to sample is a Swoke Swoke is the uh, type of alien. It's a she was a female and her name was Gra Gra. Oh my goodness! So I guess just make up a word, say it twice, and you've got a name or an alien race or anything you want. It really is, you know. I I don't know how how comprehensive Lucas was with his notes. It seems as though he put a lot of work into the naming of things at least but uh yeah there's some some crazy names we were going over some of the sand people names mm -hmm. uh from your collectible card game and uh yeah it's just r u apostrophe o r r r that's all it is really 
Now, Tatooine, did you know it's actually named after a town, oddly enough, named Tatooine? I did know that. Did you? In Tunisia. And uh, this this whole scene right here, this is actually Mos Espa. Mm-hmm. A lot of people have figured this was Mos Eisley, the, where the cantina scene is very famously in the original trilogy. But uh, no, it's actually a different place. <laughs> here we now see... Anakin, Jar Jar, the whole crew coming in to Anakin's house, or basically slave quarters, but still a pretty cool house. I'd like, I wouldn't mind living in a place like this. And, uh, you know, poor Shmi Skywalker, you know, just this whole crew comes in. Anakin's like, oh yeah, I invited everybody over, Ma. (laughs) Hope you have enough for some guests. Yeah, it's like they don't have okay well all right let's let's talk about c-3po here this is our first unveiling of the circuitry and parts all put together this is one of many attempts in my mind of lucas trying to blend the original trilogy with the prequels and i do not agree with this forced attempt to do so at all here here uh c-3po is a protocol droid He was mass-produced in a factory with tons of other protocol droids that look just like him. Maybe silver, maybe gold, but they all look the same. They all have the same purpose. Why Anakin (laughs) would create a droid that looks just like all these other droids instead of something that's unique and, you know, shows his personality and how a protocol droid would help his mother... I'm not sure. Um, you know, she she's a slave. I'm assuming she cleans up after Watto, you know, cooks for him maybe. I don't think she has to talk to too many people that speak a different language, especially uh, how many forms of communication are C-3PO? Thousands, thousands and thousands. Yeah. So I have a problem with that. As do many. And this is the first time Anthony Daniels was not used for C-3PO's movements. He's merely there for the voice. And uh, Anthony Daniels reportedly was not very enthused with the final cut of the film. Here we see the first actual introduction of Darth Maul as he's walking in Coruscant. Kind of out in the open. You'd think somebody would uh, see these guys out in the balcony and go, Hey, wait a minute, is that two Siths? You know, some guy (laughs) driving by. But, uh, yeah, they don't care. Darth Maul has to be the highlight of episode one for me. Even to this day, like, I thought he was cool back then. The face paint, the horns. I love that he doesn't talk much because it seems like any time a character opens their mouth in this movie, (laughs) it just ruins them. But, uh, and then, of course, as we'll see later, the double-bladed lightsaber. I I love Darth Maul, and I hated to see him go as quickly as he did. Yes. And speaking of opening their mouths, as we see Jar Jar stick out his tongue and grab an apple or something, some piece of fruit off of the Skywalker family table as they, they now share a meal. It's funny how they have grapes and apples in this galaxy as well. Kind of an odd coincidence. Now, about Shmi Skywalker, she did not have a name in this. I mean, she did have a name, but we never knew it. I knew it was Shmi, I think only from you guys, you and uh, our friend Steven. 
And uh, we don't ever hear her name in this entire film. In fact, Qui-Gon, we don't even hear his name until 38 minutes in. Just a few minutes ago was the first time we actually knew who he was. Unless you bought the action figures. And Shmi is <laughs> not even mentioned until episode 2, Attack of the Clones. It's like there's so much exposition about the trade federations, the trade routes, and all that stuff. And not enough about the human characters. Now, another funny piece of uh, information here is that Julia Roberts was considered for the part of Shmi Skywalker instead of uh, Pernilla August, who's, who ended up playing her. That would have been an interesting casting choice. <laughs> uh, now, in a C-3PO, we see, you know, he's here with the family. He was only supposed to be around the slave quarters. That was going to be the only time we saw him. But uh, during post-production... George Lucas decided that he was going to add uh, C-3PO digitally in, in a bunch of other scenes. Like, why not? Just cut and paste. <laughs> yeah, when you're just uh, pointing and clicking a mouse, I guess you can do whatever you want. <laughs> uh, and we hear now Anakin is bragging about his pod racer and how it's the best pod racer ever. Well, when Obi-Wan met Anakin, he was already an amazing pilot, so... Yes, that was the line we were given in uh, episode four, A New Hope. And uh, so Lucas is kind of like, uh-oh, I have to make him a great pilot, <laughs> even though he's eight years old. <laughs> so we kind of get that shoehorned in. You know, uh, I really wish that Anakin and Owen Lars, um, Luke's uncle, I wanted them to be brothers. I wanted them to be family. Um, I thought it would have been neat to have Anakin be like the the rebel of the family that goes off to fight in the Clone Wars and to become a Jedi. And Owen was the responsible one that stayed at home and took care of the moisture farm. But that wasn't the way uh, George saw this going. <laughs> Anakin was an only child and uh, he has no father. He uh, just came about one day. Not to interrupt you here, but that, the end of that scene there that we just saw where they're all eating family together, there, there's a part where Anakin turns his head to the left and it's two shots of Jake Lloyd morphed together. Like, like Liam Neeson had a great point. Lucas was just using these guys as puppets. Mm. It, it's hilarious. And then there's another part where he like turns, his, he looks off to the side and Lucas actually digitally edited Jake Lloyd's eyes to look one place rather than the other. It's like, you gotta be kidding me. Uh, he, he couldn't have Jake like, okay, in this shot, I want you to look to the left. <laughs> Don't turn your head. Just put your eyes to the left. Now here we are with Watto in the junk shop and, uh, Qui-Gon is going to kind of negotiate for the boy's freedom. If he wins the pod race. Now, one thing about Watto, which I never knew, but in the original script, they say that he's always flying because he's actually crippled. Hmm. They said that one foot, if you can see one of his feet eventually, they'll say it's longer than the other, and you obviously see that one tusk is uh, broken, and that uh, slurs his words a little bit. Interesting. Yeah, it's kind of weird. I, I forget exactly what uh, species he is, not that it matters. He's a Toydarian. Oh, boy. The <laughs> fact that you know that, Paul. That Oh, my goodness. 
the voice of Wado was done by Andy Sacomb. Sacomb? Sorry, Andy. I apologize for mispronouncing your name. But he, he based that vocal performance on Alec Guinness's performance of Fagin and Oliver Twist. So it's kind of uh, interesting to have that Star Wars connection there. Uh, reference to uh, Alec Guinness. Oh yeah, I kind of see one foot is a little longer than the other. I don't, I don't buy that. I think he's just lazy. <laughs> of course, flying takes up more energy probably than just walking around. Yeah, that's true. So here's uh, Obi-Wan talking into his lady's razor again. This is, <laughs> I found my information. It's the Sensor XL Razor for women. Poor Liam Neeson. You know, now nowadays Liam Neeson kind of appears in more... Uh, shall we say, less acclaimed fare. But at this time, you know, he was in Rob Roy. He was in some very highly regarded films. I can just imagine what he feels like talking to a tennis ball and uh, <laughs> talking into a lady's razor. <laughs> now, there's going to be a scene here. Is it here where he puts his hand on Shmi's shoulder? Um, I think that's during the pod race. Is it? Okay. Yeah. I'll talk about that later, because that was a little bit of uh, tension between uh, Liam Neeson and George Lucas, which is kind of interesting. But uh, we see that Qui-Gon gets the sense that something is different about Anakin. And uh, this is the uh, terrible scene now. She's going to explain that there was no father, this is a miracle birth, and this is George kind of getting into his, uh, his whole messiah complex with Anakin. Yeah, uh, again... Something I have a problem with, you know, let's separate these movies from religion. I know, I know in England and maybe some other countries, uh, people make <laughs> Star Wars and I, I guess Jedi is officially rec recognized as a religion in England, I believe. But, um, yeah, let's, let's give Anakin a father. I guess George probably spent a couple days thinking about, okay, what kind of father is Anakin going to have? Because have? he's going to have to be strong with the Force, too. Right, right. And another Jedi I have to come up with. Ah, he didn't have a father. Yeah, yeah. It's like she got uh, she got struck by lightning. Yeah, yeah. That's what it was. And here we see Anakin's friends. The redhead <laughs> is Seek. The uh, the girls are Amy and Melee. Uh, the Ro Rodian was Wald. Who looks like a little Greedo. Right, and uh, the one that's sticking around there, I believe, is Kitster. Kitster. Is he the one that say, Annie, that's so wizard? I believe so. Yeah. And uh, Walden Kitster, actually, I believe both of them are mentioned later in a book that was written. It's a book that takes place after Return of the Jedi, but it came out um, after the prequels. Okay. And uh, it takes place on Tatooine. And uh, those characters are still around. Uh, Leia gets to meet them and starts learning about the past, the history of her father. And trying to come to terms with Darth Vader being her father and how he actually was good at one time in his life. Uh, I didn't make it through the whole book, <laughs> I, I admit. I got about halfway through, realized I'm sick of reading about prequel information and i moved on to the thrawn trilogy yeah i hear you now uh what was the name of the little greedo guy wald wald so the little green alien wald is actually played by warwick davis 
Uh, he uh, is uh, best known probably as playing uh, Wicket, the Ewok from Return of the Jedi. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was also in uh, the later season of An Idiot Abroad, I believe. Uh, Ricky Gervais's show where he sends off his uh, his uh, studio guy, Carl Pilkington, in Adventures Around the World. And then there's one that uh, he sent off Warwick Davis with him. And then I think he, he also had a, a, a series with him called, I think it's Life's Too Short. So, uh, wasn't, yeah. Wasn't there also a movie called, was it called Willow? Oh, yeah. He was in Willow as well, yeah. yeah. I never got to see that. Okay, now we're at some pretty big controversy. This is the scene where uh, Qui-Gon doesn't ask for his mother's permission, but decides, yeah, I'm going to take a blood sample from you, Anakin. That uh, <laughs> violates so many uh, <laughs> so many patients' rights. And uh, this is the explanation of midichlorians, I believe, right? Or no. is that later on? No, no. we're going to find out about midichlorians. And, and I think, I don't know if you found anything different, but one of the main problems people had with this is they want everyone to have the ability to use the force. Yeah. And according to this, you have to be special yep. to use the force. You have to have a high midichlorian count <laughs> in your blood. If you don't, forget it. No matter how hard you concentrate on that light switch, you're not going to be able to turn it off with your mind. <laughs> So good, good message for the kids, Lucas, you know, it's like sometimes no matter how hard you try, you will never achieve your dreams. And I like how that Naboo spaceship also had a midichlorian reader built in, you know, just in case Panaka and Rico Olier or whatever his name is, they're out with the Queen Amidala and like, oh yeah, let's test some kids to see if they're going to be Jedi someday. Here we see Darth Maul now landing on Tatooine with his shiny silver bracelet, his black cloak, and his uh, binoculars, which if you were like me as a 15-year-old and you bought the supplemental action figure pack, you got all of these. Did you buy that? That I did. (laughs) And if you put that black cloak on him, it does not fit. (laughs) It looks terrible. And uh, so now we're getting into the very famous pod race scene. This I will still watch. It's stupid. I know. It is stupid, but I don't mind this scene at all. I think uh, I think it really adds nothing to the story other than action, you know, and it's something beautiful to look at. That's one thing about these movies. It's not like Roger Corman's Fantastic Four, which we have also seen. Uh, this does give you something to look at, aside from being a terrible narrative. Those... Uh aquamarine colored Twi'lek girls that are attending to Sebulba in the background. Yes. Their names are Anne and Tan Gela. <laughs> and uh, also those creatures with the long snouts we see um, pulling around the pod racers. Those are Eopies. They are herd animals native to Tatooine. <laughs> the males are used, uh, or uh, the adults are used as beasts of burden. And the young and elderly are useful for consuming desert weeds. And those are the creatures one breaks wind in Jar Jar's face, right? Yes. Okay. <laughs> more, more, more bathroom humor. Yes, of course. Because that's what's funny. Lucas knows how to write a good joke. Have him step in crap. All right, have the thing fart in his face. <laughs> so now we see the chance cube. Now, we, we heard of chance before in the original trilogy, right? Isn't that how... 
Um, I think they were just referring... I think they may be referred to games of chance, just like gambling in general. Oh, okay. I believe. Now, we see here, Qui-Gon uses the Force to alter the effect of the, the chance cube, meaning that he was going to win no matter what uh, Watto threw. Now, according to the original script, the chance cube that Watto rolled with Qui-Gon was fixed to land on red. And that's why he was so mad in that scene that uh, Qui-Gon tampered with it. You think he would know then it would, he knew exactly that he was tampered with. I don't know. Maybe he figured, well, I was cheating you. You cheated me. I can't really say anything. Yeah. But who cares? There's no rules on Tatooine. <laughs> be like, no deal. It was supposed to land on red. So I know you're cheating, <laughs> but whatever. The story moves on. Unfortunately, let me give you a couple quick facts about Anakin's uh, pod racer. As we hear Kitster say, this is so wizard. <sighs> <laughs> um, so Anakin's pod racer was built from Radon Ulzer racing engines that Watto had regarded as too burned out to be of any use. Uh, and Anakin added a new fuel injection subsystem, which he created himself. <laughs> of course. To increase the thrust. Kid genius, Anakin. Uh, yeah, and, and there is backstories and there are technical specs and names for all of these pod racers, which is crazy. Somebody actually went through all the time, and probably Lucas himself, all the time to do this. Now, here we see the, the two-headed announcer. This is Bede and Fode Anodui, if I'm saying that right. And one is Greg Proops, who you may remember from Whose Line Is It Anyway? Yes. And uh, he is the English-speaking pod race announcer. And uh, Scott Capuro... I believe he's a, a voice actor, plays the uh, the Huttese-speaking announcer. That's the, the language I guess they speak on this planet is Huttese. And uh, here we have more CGI nonsense. All, we see all the creatures walk in. Sebulba, he's this weird Doug. Is that the name of the alien? Doug. Yes, yep. And he's uh, cheering the, you know, the crowd is cheering. He's, you know, playing up to the crowd. Sadly, I own this pod racer toy. <laughs> I went all out for this movie. I was so excited. We see Mahonic and uh, Clegg Holdfast. There's some weird names in this. Sebulba is a Doug, and he comes from the planet Pixelito. Oh. <laughs> Sounds like a Pepperidge Farm cookie. And all of these characters, all of these pod racers, they're all in the... Uh, the great uh, Star Wars Episode One racer for Nintendo 64. Now, did you own that, Paul? I did. I... I... Put many hours into that game. Oh, me too. Until I got to that one level where it was almost like you were flying in Bespin or something. Oh, it yeah, was it was a like, gas planet. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And there were a ton of parts of the track where you were on these narrow tracks and you could fly off of it if you weren't careful. And you'd fly off so many times and die and restart where you flew off. And there was no catching up to the pack after that. Yeah. I was trying to go through and get gold on everyone. And <laughs> that, that was making me rip my hair out and I quit. <laughs> I love this game. Uh, Sean came over, uh, my co-host Sean, and he brought his kids. And, you know, his kids are like 8, 10, 12. Uh, so I, I set up the Nintendo 64. They loved it. They could not believe that there were video games for this movie. They're of the age where this movie is like perfect. They <laughs> love this movie. And, uh, yeah, so it's, it's nice to see that, you know, the game can still make uh, everybody happy. <laughs> you know, when this movie came out, Scott, I did enjoy it. 
there were some things I didn't care for about it, but I was young and naive. <laughs> and I went back to the theater to see it a second time, and a third, and a fourth, and a fifth. Oh, boy. And I actually went back a sixth time <laughs> a couple years ago when they re-released it in 3D. I took my nephew to see it, and I was like, what's one more time? It's it's a 3D experience of Star Wars on the big screen. Yeah. So we went. It wasn't that. Not to interrupt you, but you see the girl with the blue hair? She's wearing Leia's slave costume. Oh, and we see a second hut in the background. That's Gardula the hut. She's a female. Because why not, right? <laughs> well, did you know about huts that they actually change sex at some point in their marriage, uh, in their marriage, in their <laughs> lifetime? They they all start out as males, and then and they reproduce asexually. So at some point in their lifetime, they become a female, and they become pregnant, and they give birth to another hut. Oh wow! So yeah, yeah no. There are some gastropods that do that, so there there is some basis for that. But come on, Lucas, let's not worry about uh, what uh, Jabba the Hutt has going on down below. Let's worry about actually creating a good story here. You know? Do you think Qui Gon realizes that Padme is the queen? I mean, he's a Jedi; he can read her mind. Yeah, but the Sith, the bad, you know, the bad guys, the Sith, they they cloud the minds of the Jedi. This is happening right now. So let's just say, since Darth Maul is on the planet, it's a little static, little interference. <laughs> now the crowd here, this crowd noise, Ben Burt brought a recorder to a San Francisco 49ers game, and that, that's the crowd you're hearing. So uh, what was this, 99? So maybe, maybe, uh, maybe you heard some, some cheers for Steve Young or something in the background. And there's, there's really just too many pod racers and pods that we could talk about here we could you know d name each each <laughs> pod the racer the yeah. alien species he is what planet there's warwick from. davis next to uh watto for those also watching the dvd we lucas does put him in for the first time without a mask so it's kind of nice and anakin quickly breaks down yeah, so like, you know, really at a disadvantage from the from the get-go. Now, one thing I've seen in my research, which I never noticed any time I've watched this, is that supposedly they used colored Q-tips on a miniature stadium uh, to provide some of the background spectators, and that ended up in the movie? Wow. That's what I've heard, and I, I've yet to see it. But uh, there might be one shot or two where they didn't uh, digitally edit them out, but who knows, by the time the DVD release came out, maybe they, they did fix it. This is actually one of the last films I've ever bought on VHS. Yes, I own this on VHS as well. And DVD. Did, did you have it on Blu-ray? No, I, I did own it on DVD, and I sold it in a yard sale. <laughs> or, or maybe traded it in to uh, FYE. Back when this movie actually had some value. Uh, I currently do not own any of the prequels in any format. <laughs> uh, there we had a quick glimpse of a female character with white skin and uh, mostly a bald head except for a, tony, a ponytail coming out of the top of her head. <laughs> that is Ara Singh. She is a bounty hunter. So what's she doing there? Just hanging out with Jabba? Yeah, 
She's a former student of the Force. After failing her Jedi training, she became known for hunting down and killing Jedi Knights, actually. So uh, I don't know if she's there because she senses uh, Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon's presence. Okay. But we just see that quick one-second glimpse of her uh, in the canyon checking out the Padres. It's hilarious that there's so many backstories for all these ancillary characters. See the sand people. George Lucas really, I, he went too far in shoehorning all these elements from the original trilogy into this. Uh, as the, At the time of this recording, we're a few months before the release of Star Wars Episode Seven. So our hope is that we got a lot of new characters not connected to anybody else. And uh, yeah, <laughs> we'll see how that goes. Now, you just noticed right there next to Watto in his uh, spectator's box, there was an alien named Graxall Kelvin. Okay, and what's interesting about this character is that before there was even talks of Samuel L. Jackson or anybody playing Mace Windu, he was supposed to be an animatronic character. And this character was later identified as Anx, A-N-X, and he's there sitting next to Watto in the box as well as during the Senate scenes as Senator Horrocks Ryder. So uh, just uh, George Lucas, I guess he got the sculpt or something, the model sculpt of this character. And, you know, why, why throw it away? If we're going to go with Samuel L. Jackson, we'll just use him somewhere else. <laughs> I love that the spectators are being sold all kinds of food and everything as if it was a baseball game. Some all gross amphibious creatures that they eat. It's after the first lap of this pod race. I don't know if we've finished the first lap or not. But because this scene just goes on and on and on. Uh, it's funny because Watto and Sebulba are speaking. They're shouting out something in their native tongues. And it's actually Finnish. And they're saying, thank you and you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so I can only imagine, I would hope it would be dubbed uh, differently in, in premieres in Finland because it would be odd just to see the characters, you know, like, thank you and you're welcome. Now, I wasn't, I wasn't watching the screen from the very beginning of the race. I believe it's not in the movie, the theatrical release, but it's in one of the deleted scenes where we see more of the race, like an extended version of it. And that's where we see how Sebulba really cheats to win. He has uh, his pod racer heavily modified, and he even has a flamethrower in the side of it. Yeah. And I remember in the game when you could race as Sebulba, I think you double tap one of the trigger buttons or something. The right shoulder button. Okay. I remember it very distinctly. And, uh, and you could shoot flames at any pod that's unfortunately, alongside of you. Because <laughs> uh, in that game, Sebulba is the best. He he has the best pod racer. He has the most wins. Of course, Anakin is this young phenom in his first pod race or whatever. This is his first, right? Uh, I think he just built the racer. No, I think they said that Wa uh, Watto said he crashed his last pod. Oh, okay. So. All right. So this, this is the, his first with that pod racer. That's what it is. Mm -hmm. But... Sebulba is supposed to be the best. And in this game that they came out with for the Nintendo 64, if you got gold on like every level, you got to unlock Sebulba's pod racer. You don't get to play him otherwise. So my friends and I, I bought the game. Uh, some friends of mine came down uh, during school vacation. They slept over for like a week. And uh, 
we played this nonstop. And our goal was to get Sebalba's pod racer. Only because if you tap that right trigger, you can fire the flamethrower. I don't even know if it was any good. But we wasted uh, a, a week of our lives on this game. And I remember there was one final race where we just needed gold. My friend Billy was uh, leading the pack in whatever pod racer character we were using. And he had to showboat, had to be a hot dog right at the end. Right as he was going over the finish line, he turned his pod racer slightly to the left to like skid in sideways. He thought it would be funny. And instead he ended up in second place and <laughs> we wanted to kill him. Oh, we could We were so angry. That's a, those are the memories I have when I think of these, these pod racing <laughs> scenes. Uh, any other memories about the pod race scene, Scott? Particularly what happened to me roughly around this time of the movie? When we were watching it together once in your living room. Oh, yes, yes, yes. The 24-hour movie marathon. Uh, this was after we had both graduated high school. And uh, you had come for the summer, like a couple of weeks in the summer, something like that. Mm -hmm. And Paul and I had the great idea. Listen, we love the Star Wars movies. We love the Marvel movies that were out at the time, like the Spider-Man and X-Men movies. Why don't we put together a 24-hour movie marathon? We'll count up the running times of all these movies. We'll put them all together, watch them back-to-back, -back, and just spend a day of our lives watching our favorite movies. In fact, we even threw in the movie Daredevil, which we had never seen up to that point. I still haven't seen it. <laughs> I own it. It's on my shelf. I can look, look at it right now. Uh, so we made a couple of mistakes. Uh, what we did was, in fact, Back to the Future was in it, the Back to the Future trilogy. I think some of the Indiana Jones movies were in it, but somehow it just totaled over 24 hours. And we started at night for some reason. So we were up the whole day up until that point. So mm -hmm. if we went through with this, we were going to be up like a good 36, 37, 38 hours, which mm -hmm. was not going to happen. <laughs> uh, Paul, Paul and myself, I don't think we've ever stayed up that late, even as young kids playing video games, you know, uh, during school vacations. And so what we did was we went to Dunkin' Donuts. We're like, let's go get uh, some vanilla chai, something with a little caffeine, a lot of sugar to wake us up. So, uh, oh no, we did that dur during the movie, didn't we? Yeah. That's what it was. So our first movie, of course, was this, Star Wars Episode One. We said, we'll watch the Star Wars movie in the story's chronological order. So we put in the, our copy of the VHS copy of Star Wars episode one, and we were just dead. Like this, the pod race scene was just on and on and on. And both of us, I, we had a couch and a love seat in my living room at the time. Paul was on the couch. I was on the love seat. Every time I looked over to Paul, his eyes were half open and the same thing was happening to me. And we're like, how are we going to do this movie marathon if we can't even get through the first movie? Then we went to Dunkin' Donuts, got vanilla chai, something sugary to keep us up, drank that down, came back home, same thing happened, and we were out. And uh, the 24-hour movie marathon ended at the pod racing. <laughs> <laughs> About an hour in to the movie. That was it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, unbelievable. Now, just, uh, just earlier, we saw Jar Jar calling Anakin Annie, and... We've heard that a few times probably at this point in the movie. Yeah. Another thing I can't stand. Annie, to most of us, is a girl's name. And 
we're taking this character who is eventually going to be one of the most feared people in the galaxy <laughs> and calling him Annie. I just did not like it. Yeah, I mean, the 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 cheesy lines, you know, the bowl cut and everything, calling him Annie. Maybe Lucas was trying to give us that juxtaposition of this impish, you know, young child, this sweet child with, you know, who knew right from wrong and he had these great ideals and what we know he will become. So it's like, all right, whatever. But yeah, I, I, I know. Annie, Annie. Oh, and I think here comes another part too. An awkward hug between uh, the future uh, <laughs> father and mother of Luke and Leia. This was just so weird. Actually, I think I had missed it. It was earlier when uh, Qui-Gon had lifted Anakin to maybe put him in the pod racer or lift him out of it. And he went, whoa! <laughs> I'm just like, really? You just like, you, know, <laughs> you fly hundreds of miles per hour in a pod and and that was a thrill for you? That's true. Yeah, I didn't even think of that. Wow. Well, maybe he uh, he was barely holding on to him. Maybe it was the force that was lifting <laughs> him up. Uh, and, and as we saw a minute ago, Jabba the Hutt had the same problem as us. He also was bored with the pod race and fell asleep <laughs> during it. Why was he even there? And did they mention in the movie this is called the Bunta Eve? Classic. Uh, yeah, I believe it was probably said by the announcers, the Boonta Eve classic yeah. pod race. What Boonta Eve is, what it celebrates, or I don't know. Well, it's the day before Boonta. <laughs> <laughs> Evidently. All I can think of is the video game with that pod race and how the announcer would go, it's a new lap record. It's a new track record. Uh, and it's like, what, you know, why did you have to land on Tatooine? Why did you have to find this kid? Did the forest bring them to the planet? You know, is that what, what Lucas is trying to tell us? But, uh, so now they're going to tell the, 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 uh, the Lucas, Lucas's, they're going to tell Anakin's mother the news that they sold the pod racer and, uh, he's no longer a slave and, uh, Unfortunately, Shmi was not uh, bought out of her freedom. And now here's the sappy moment where she lets him know that he's now free. Now, did we pass the scene where Qui-Gon puts his hand on her shoulder? We probably did pass it as we were talking. I believe uh, that happened during the pod race. During an especially tense scene where Anakin was in peril. I believe he was standing behind her and put his hand on her shoulder. Okay. Well, as I was saying earlier, this was a little bit of tension between uh, Liam Neeson and George Lucas, reportedly. Uh, Liam Neeson tried to convince George Lucas to keep that scene where he kind of just puts his hand on her shoulder. Not any like he was hitting on her or anything. It was just to console her, you know, to tell her, you know, that everything's going to be okay. And Lucas thought, that this was kind of out of character, that Qui-Gon is supposed to be a very monk-like Jedi, and they're not supposed to really show their emotions. But uh, Neeson thought that there was supposed to be this emotional connection between the characters, and in an interview with Premiere Magazine, <laughs> Neeson reportedly saying, <laughs> it may be Star Wars, but we gotta have something in there for the adults. <laughs> thought that was funny. So there, he wanted to have 
that emotional connection. Again, this is an acclaimed actor. He kind of knows the deal. And fortunately, he was able to get that in. I did not view that as, oh, look how weak Qui-Gon is because he's consoling the mother of this kid. If it's that scene where he crashed, especially. And, of course, this is before we learn that Jedi were not allowed to love. Yeah, We're not allowed to have relationships. So, you know, I thought, hey, Qui-Gon might be interested in this single woman. I don't don't (laughs) have a problem with it. He should have been the father. (laughs) Now, uh, just speaking a little more on Qui-Gon, do you know where his name comes from? I do not. Qui-Gon comes from, if I'm saying this right, Qi-Gong, which is the uh, the Chinese uh, Eastern medicine. Qi-Gong, I think it's Qi, Q-I in Chinese. And Jin refers to Jin, D-J-I-N-N, which are the genies the uh, of Arabic myth. Okay. So does it mean anything in terms of this? No, <laughs> not at all. But uh, just Lucas kind of taking some... Names that have been around in the world, in cultures, and just kind of like mixing them together and using them as names. Better than Calamari, I'll give him that. Uh, We saw Obi-Wan a couple minutes ago, and we'll be seeing more of him uh, soon. Some of the notes that we have on Obi-Wan's character, and that is a character I did enjoy throughout the prequels. I thought Ewan McGregor portrayed him very well. Yeah. Um, but a couple other actors they had looked at for that role was Tim Roth. Okay. Harry Connick Jr. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been interesting. And, uh, Kenneth Branagh. Yeah. Uh, also brought out that Ewan McGregor studied many of Alec Guinness films, including episode four, to ensure accuracy in everything from his accent to pacing of his words. And I think that really paid off. Yeah, I think so too. And then uh, finally, the braid that we see him sporting. Of course, we see Anakin with one at the end of the movie and in episode two. That is something that a Padawan learner would have to show he's not a full-fledged Jedi yet. But when his master thought they were ready to be a Jedi Knight, they would chop that little braid off with their lightsaber. (laughs) A rat tail, as we would call it in (laughs) elementary school. Yeah, and there is no indication of any of that in any of the original trilogy, right? Uh, no, no. Was at it all. in any of the books you read? No, but I didn't read too many of the Star Wars books. Because I'm wondering if Lucas kind of just added that in once he got this prequel trilogy going. You know, it's just probably that really wasn't explained to us. We kind of got the sense at the end of the movie, as you're talking about, that that's what that means. But as far as, like, just seeing Ewan McGregor, it's like, okay, he's got, like, this little weird little ponytail. Which doesn't really, you don't think of it meaning anything, because Qui-Gon has some uh, long hair. And here we go. This is the first uh, lightsaber confrontation between Qui-Gon and Darth Maul. If you were like me and you bought the Darth Maul action figure, you know that he has a double-sided lightsaber. I think that was all in the promotional material. They really wanted to play that up. So I was waiting for it here. I'm like, why is he only using one side? The handle's huge, (laughs) you know? And uh, this is the Phantom Menace, supposedly. Darth Maul is the Phantom Menace. But then Lucas kind of went back on that, and he's like, well, 
you know, Darth Sidious is also kind of the Phantom Menace. So he didn't even know who the Phantom Menace refers to. You know, we've we've heard that before with Revenge of the Jedi having to be turned into Return of the Jedi. I don't know if Lucas really thinks out these titles so much. I think George Lucas may be the Phantom Menace. <laughs> and you know what? I, I hate to, to make fun of the guy because he's given us so many great things that we love. It's just, I, and I've talked to you about this too, Paul, where it's like, I've been trained as an artist, you know, in school and stuff. And I personally, I like chalk pastels. I, that's what I like to use to make, make my pictures. And sometimes you can look at it and see your own flaws that you've put into your drawing. And you want to add a little more. And you want to add a little more. And you want to add a little more. And if you keep doing that, you're going to ruin what you drew. So at some point, you're going to have to say, all right, I'm done with what I'm drawing. And that's it. And Lucas is an artist that can't do that. And he just has to keep adding a little more and adding a little more. And uh, he ruins his art sometimes. So while I appreciate Lucas the artist, I don't appreciate <laughs> Lucas the perfectionist. I'll put it to you that way. Mm -hmm. Oh, and do you, you know, uh, here, this, uh, this guy that we're seeing in the hologram with the white beard, he's calling from Naboo. He's telling Padme that while they were away, the death toll was catastrophic back on her homeworld. And, you know, she has to come back. It's an emergency. Do you know what that character's name is? Uh, no, I don't. His name is C.O. Bibble. And I did a Sporkle quiz. If, if anybody out there wants to try to take quizzes on, on anything, you go to Sporkle.com and you can type in, you know, capitals or movies. And I was like, you know what? I'll do a Star Wars character quiz. And I remembered who C.O. Bibble was. And I just remember feeling this terrible pain in the pit of my stomach. Going, what have I done with my life where I know who C.O. Bibble is? <laughs> I, thought, I thought you were going to tell me it said you were most like C.O. Bibble. No, not yeah, Personality quiz. <laughs> No, I don't have the uh, the white goatee going on. <laughs> yeah, and something about that, the death toll. At this point, have we seen anyone in Thede? Like, have we seen anyone suffering or having any ill effect from the Trade Federation occupation of that planet? I mean, we saw the Queen and her council and her handmaidens and you know a few pilots and whatever but no one else so you know we can't get emotionally attached or involved because we see nothing bad happening i mean you compare <laughs> this to episode four sure we didn't see people on the planet of alderaan but we saw the planet explode yeah yeah and you know, we we see Obi-Wan, like, feel the pain of all that death, and it meant something. It right. meant a lot more than what's happening on Naboo right now. Here's our first scene of the planet Coruscant. It is uh, the capital of the Galactic Empire, and it was described just now to Anakin as one giant city. And uh, beautiful look. You know, this is just one of those scenes I remember seeing in the theater for the first time and just being in awe. Just a, a, a city that encompasses an entire world. All the traffic, all the ships flying by. Just amazingly done. The, uh, the planet of Coruscant was first mentioned in the expanded universe 
That's where it appeared first, before this movie. And it was in the novel Heir to the Empire by Timothy Zahn. And uh, it was set five years after Return of the Jedi. That was our, our first... Uh, that's the book I'm reading right now. Okay, so that that's that's the first appearance of Coruscant, you could mm-hmm. say. <laughs> this is our first look at Chancellor Valorum, who <laughs> played Zod. <laughs> it's pretty funny to see uh, Zod in this. Yeah, Coruscant is very popular in Star Wars. Um, I believe it's the setting for some games now. Um, it's mentioned in many of the books. Um, a lot has happened throughout history on Coruscant and uh it is you know the planet is covered in city in buildings and structures and it's actually over the years has been built up on top of other buildings like there are the undergrounds of Coruscant where the poor live you know and it's it's a very interesting planet yeah so much going on in fact This is, uh, I've heard this, I haven't seen this for myself, but supposedly the Starship Enterprise is in here. One of these ships flying around. Uh, Where? I don't know. I haven't seen a screenshot, but that's what I've heard. Is that uh, specifically the one from Star Trek, the um, Star Trek The Next Generation is in there. It's just kind of funny. Oh, and here's time for the kids to go for a potty break <laughs> or uh, go grab a snack or something because it's going to get really dull for them right now. Yeah, this is for the adults. Thanks, George. Yeah. <laughs> now we can really get into it. Uh, politics. <laughs> politics and Star Wars. Now, this uh, this dress that uh, Amidala is wearing here, it's kind of like a, a light gray robe. Uh, all of the dresses that she wears, very, very ornate, uh, to an uncomfortable degree, I would imagine. And this this dress that we're seeing right now as she talks to Palpatine in his office is based on uh, uh, garb that would be worn by Mongolian royalty. So just kind of uh, an interesting take on uh, some Eastern cultures that are heavily influencing her uh, her dress. In fact, one of them has lights. I'm not mm-hmm. sure if we've passed that or not. Yeah, that was... Um... Uh, The very first one, I believe, the red one, it kind of flowed out. Mm -hmm. And uh, along the bottom, there were big kind of circular orange half, you know, semi-spheres, and they were illuminated. And that was actually powered by a car battery (laughs) underneath, which is pretty funny. I do believe that whoever worked on uh, Queen Amidala's wardrobe deserves some kind of recognition for this movie. Oh, yeah. I mean, just the the art design that went into this is incredible. George Lucas really put together a good team around him. And now we meet the Jedi Council and see Yoda. (laughs) Now, originally, when this movie came out and when it was originally released on DVD, Yoda was a puppet. But did you know, Scott, that they went back after episodes two and three came out when he was completely CGI because of all the action he had? And they actually went back and redid Yoda in episode one and made him completely CGI to match episodes two and three. Really? Yes. Wow. So what are we seeing here on the DVD? This is the puppet, right? Yes. We're looking at the puppet in this one. So on the Blu-ray, does he appear as CGI? Yes. Wow. Okay. 
So if you are following along and you're watching on your DVD, that's the puppet as we're seeing. And on the Blu-ray, I guess you're seeing the CGI version. Again, he looks fine as a puppet. It's Yoda. I mean, think about the last time we saw him in the Star Wars trilogy. I mean, you could practically see uh, Frank Oz's wedding ring as he's, you know, moving around and stuff. It's just like, it's fine. There is such a suspension of disbelief that it, this did not bother me in the least. He did not have to go back and change it. Here we see so many different Jedi. That uh, conehead-looking guy is named Ki-Adi Mundi. We talked about him in the Clone Wars cartoon. That is actually played by Silas Carson. He's the voice of the, the Viceroy, Newt Gunray, the Nemoidian that uh, serves as one of the main antagonists of this movie. The uh, Jedi with the very long neck <laughs> yeah. and the small head on top. That is Yareel Poof. Oh, of course it is. <laughs> uh, there's another Jedi that looks very similar to Yoda. Just got a little more hair on top. And he is Yaddle. Oh, I, I, not to correct you, but she is Yaddle. That's a, a female version of Yoda species. Okay. Which, you know what? They don't name Yoda species ever. Have they done that yet? I do not believe so. For all the backstory of all these characters, we don't even know what species Yoda is. There was another Jedi with ears similar to Yoda, but skin more like the color of our own, and a scar across one eye. He is even peel. And he is a Lannick. Here we are at the Senate scene at the giant mushroom. And uh, I remember just thinking the look of this is so amazing that this is the Galactic Senate. Look at these all these little pods that uh, come out. And uh, again, the, the dialogue is just inane and tedious and boring. Mommy, what's happening? I know. Yeah, exactly. And now... Somewhere in this, I love when if you if you disagree with another senator, you make your pod fly out. <laughs> it's like, what's the point of this? Now there is somewhere in here the uh, the creatures that resemble ET, and uh, I I forget what they're actually called because somebody actually went back and added them into one of the novels, which is really funny. The Nemodian senator here is named Lot Dodd. Yes, yes. And some people, just like Newt Gunray, people thought that uh, that was a, a, a an attack or, you know, George Lucas's criticism of uh, Newt Gingrich. They thought Lot Dodd was also uh, a, a, an attack on uh, Trent Lott, who was in, in the Senate at the time. <laughs> it's like, who knows? Who knows what Lucas was thinking? But... Uh, when, when she's asking here, Queen Amidala, for the vote of no confidence, there's, at the lower right corner, you can see E.T. species. Mm -hmm. You know, there's like three of them. Obviously, uh, George Lucas's friend is Steven Spielberg, and uh, he might have even worked on that movie a little bit. I'm not sure. And uh, the author, James Lucino, actually wrote in his Star Wars novel, Cloak of Deception, that they are from the planet Brodo Asogi. Okay, and they are represented by Senator Greebleeps, which is Spielberg spelled backwards. <laughs> <laughs> okay, here it comes. I move for a vote of no confidence. And, you know, another reason why I didn't uh, get a, that this was Natalie Portman, you know, because we saw Portman now as the handmaid. Oh, yeah, there's, there's the little E.T. creatures. Bottom left. 
okay, uh, is because her voice isn't the same. And for a long time, I didn't get that this was Natalie Portman. And now just doing the research to prepare for this episode, Lucas had her voice digitally lowered. Did you know that? I did not. Yeah. To make her sound more queenly, evidently. <laughs> did did he also take all emotion out of her voice? <laughs> I believe that was a direction. I, I wouldn't be surprised if he's like, colder, more wooden. I'm glad uh, this didn't ruin her uh, career. You know, she's gone on to be in many good films after the prequels. Yes. Here we have the scene where young Anakin is being tested to see uh, if he can know what's on a little viewer that uh, Mace Windu is holding. <laughs> the the uh, female Jedi that we see to Anakin's right in the background, she is Adi Galia, and she's actually a Kirillian Jedi Master. That is the planet that Han Solo is from. Okay, so th those like things that come out of her head, those are just like a hat? Uh, it appears to be. Okay, so she's a little more human looking. Mm -hmm. All right. Now, Mace Windu, we don't even get his name in this, I don't think. Uh, if you were like me and you bought the action figures, you kind of knew all the names going into it. But otherwise, you're kind of lost. And there's another Jedi we just saw in the background uh, with horns on his head, kind of like Darth Maul. His name is Eeth Koth. <laughs> and his uh, species is a Zabrek. Funny thing about the character of Mace Windu, reportedly, I don't know if this is true, but at least this is a rumor, that the rapper and actor Tupac Shakur expressed interest in at least reading for the role of Mace Windu. And he even went to the point of lobbying mutual friends of his and George Lucas's to get them in touch so they could set up a meeting. Unfortunately, he passed away in September of 1996. So who knows if that's even true. And supposedly the meeting never even took place. But uh, it's, it's been said that Tupac has been a Star Wars fan since childhood. So it just would have been interesting to see, you know, like Kenneth Branagh as Qui-Gon and... Julia Roberts as Shmi, Tupac Shakur as Mace Windu. It would have been a completely different movie. Now, Paul, if you could do some alternate casting, what would you do? Like, say, what character would you, or what actor would you put in place of what we see here on the screen? I never really gave that much thought. Well, that's um, why I'm asking you. <laughs> like I had said before, though, I don't like... Um, being introduced to Anakin at such a young age. Yeah. Um, you know, when we were introduced to Luke, he I'm not sure exactly what his age was. He was definitely late teens. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it worked. And I kind of feel like this should have been similar. Um, I, I never gave it too much thought what actor would have portrayed Anakin well. I don't think I would have chosen Hayden Christensen for the role, but... You mean as as the even younger Anakin? Yes. Oh, to make him full go throughout the trilogy? Yeah. But at least the ages would have been a little closer together. Well, there was only five years difference, nine and 14. Is that what it, what it was officially for the characters? Yeah. Because yeah. I think Natalie, they said, was 17, at least when this right. premiered. And she couldn't make the premiere because of finals, supposedly. <laughs> 
which, uh, you know what, maybe I would also claim that I had finals too. <laughs> Those ages are burned into my brain because of the uh, Weird Al song, The Saga Begins. Oh. <laughs> Though he's just nine and she's 14. Yeah, five years is a lot when you're you're very young like that. That's uh, It was just kind of weird. Like, really? They're going to grow up to be married? But, uh, yeah, and it's funny that Natalie Portman is there for all three movies, but he's not. Well, girls mature faster, so, you know. As evidenced by the fact that we're sitting here reviewing Phantom Menace. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Lily would have been with us if she could. I know, I know. Well, she's busy in college actually making a life for herself right now, so that's fine. So now we have the scene where Qui-Gon is just trying to convince the council after they rejected Anakin. They can tell that Anakin is very strong in the Force, as Qui-Gon detected. But they said, you know, he's too uh, emotional. He misses his mother, and uh, there's that fear, that anxiety, that does not make for a good Jedi. And Qui-Gon's really lobbying for him, saying, you know, he might be this foretold prophecy. This, like, very powerful child that would be born to bring balance to the force and that's kind of like the theme of all six movies in a sense um when anakin met padme george had anakin even show a little of that anger he has in him when she asked that he was his slave if you recall oh he yeah, said, yeah i'm yeah. a person and my name is anakin yes and if you bought the action figure i believe he says that when you put him on the ladies razor <laughs> uh and here I love how Obi-Wan is talking about the boy, calling him dangerous as they walk right by Anakin, who's <laughs> tending to R2-D2. Yeah. Now, does he explain the midichlorians here? Yes. Yeah, and, and again, this is just a problem that people had with the movie, myself included. You know, it's like, like you said, you're not, it's not something achievable by anybody. It's not something you can put your mind to, to be good at. Much like being a, an, a, an athlete, sometimes it helps to be born, you know, like if you're a basketball player, if you're born and you grow into becoming a, a seven-foot adult, you might be better at basketball than somebody that's, you know, 5'1". Uh, it's the same thing here. And we learn that uh, midichlorians are this microscopic life form. They are a virus or a bacteria or something that's in your bloodstream. And, uh... I understand what Lucas was going for here. You know, it's kind of like this organic thing. He didn't want, I guess, to go too spiritual with it. But I like how he left it vague. He left it ambiguous. You can kind of put your own spin on it. Your own thoughts. Like what you think the Force is. Is it is it something that exists that binds the universe together? You know, kind of like how we think of like dark energy in astrophysics or something, or is it something more spiritual? It's whatever you want it to be. But now Lucas says, nope, definitively, nope, bacteria. You know, you can take an antibiotic and probably clear it up. Well, and, and earlier when Qui-Gon was talking to the council about Anakin, he said that he believed the boy was conceived by the midichlorians. <laughs> yeah, that's... So. so, maybe he should have done a blood test on Shmi. You know, maybe she could have been uh, this great uh, <laughs> possessor of the Force. But who knows? And here again we see Theed, devoid of all uh, life other than a couple Nemoidians. 
talking to Darth Sidious, who we're really not supposed to know that Sidious is Palpatine, really until the third prequel, right? Yeah. Which is so silly. And I mean, if you bought the figures, he's listed as Darth Sidious. And he's the exact same figure, or, you know, very close figure to the Palpatine figure. You know, it's like... And you can kind of tell on the face that it's him. It's just kind of silly. More, uh, more Amidala costume here. It's kind of a purplish getup. That looks nice. At least one thing they did show is that, uh, in her room, she has like this giant trunk full of her costumes, you know, at least they thought to put that in. Cause that would have been a very good question is where does she put all these clothes? So now they're flying back into Naboo because Amidala has to be with her people. You know, we, we're, we're shown quite early on in the movie that she is a very well-regarded and loved leader of her people, even though she is a child. And she is a very effective leader. And the, the people love her. And so she does not want to be away from her people uh, during this time of distress because... As she got that message from Bibble that uh, there's some some crazy death tolls. As uh, we find out that's not really the case. That he's kind of put up to it. little brief fun, fun fact I just stumbled across. Oh, they're all fun. <laughs> uh, Watto actually won Shmi and Anakin in a pod race bet with Gardula the Hutt. Whom we saw oh, behind yeah. Jabba. Yeah. So. More uh, exposition we were never given. That we didn't need. And Jar Jar's back. You know, you think he could go home to help defend his people. And we don't need to see it. One thing I should say, for a complete evisceration of this movie, point by point, there is a group called Red Letter Media that does a, an incredible job of just dissecting every plot point and all the logical flaws in these movies. And uh, it is amazingly done. So we recommend that uh, you check those out. If you uh, hate the prequels like we do. And uh, <laughs> you want to see even more of why these things don't make sense. Uh, some great points about, you know, the, the geography of Naboo. How things don't really make sense. How they don't work out right. Up until the, the whole Trade Federation stuff and the uh the final battle it's just uh it's a great dissection of these films i think they did all three of the prequels i introduced those to a, a former co-worker of mine he was a big star wars fan and uh he sat behind me at work and we be, we made it a habit every day during our lunch break we would watch at least one episode of those they last about 10 to 15 minutes each yeah and they're about as long as the movies all all three of the prequels were done by red letter media and it, you know it probably took us a few weeks month to get through but it was it was hilarious <laughs> it's so enjoyable and it's nice to go back every year or so and refresh our memories and get a good laugh here we have the big reveal the Gungans and the Naboo people are meeting in this, uh, in this secret location. And, uh, now Padme has come forward as the handmaiden that reveals herself to be the queen. 
And uh, she did that, I guess, because she was just wanted to make sure that uh, she was safe. And though Anakin's just like, what? And uh, this is the, this is the point where I, in the movie where I myself was like Anakin and just like, what? Wait a minute. Okay, so when wasn't she the queen? Oh, okay, that was the queen on Tatooine. Like, they could have just maybe told us. This movie was so convoluted. I love how Boss Nass is the only non-Gungan-looking Gungan. <laughs> just kind of a, like I said, a frog-looking guy. Very strange. Uh, and I just feel bad for <laughs> Liam Neeson. <laughs> Intercut with these scenes of this bombastic bullfrog with the big grin. Saying, me's a like a deuce. Ugh. Qui-Gon and Ewan, or yeah, Liam Neeson and Ewan McGregor, they went on for, you know, they were in a lot more movies since then and have had flourishing careers, so thankfully they didn't pay for being involved in this movie either. <laughs> yeah, Ewan McGregor kind of uh, disassociated himself from, from these movies, he does not care. You know, he doesn't go to any conventions or anything like that. He says that the only people that approach him for autographs are trying to sell him anyway. So he doesn't even bother with people that come up to him. He even got people heckling him and stuff. Which, that's not really fair because he was one of the high points of this movie. You know, he really gave it his all. Now, there was another um, video game for the Nintendo 64 based on this movie. Did you own that one too? No, I didn't. What was it? It was the Naboo Starfighter game really it was uh basically rogue squadron but with you know the settings from the movie you would fly the yellow naboo starfighter that we'll see shortly and uh you would fight against different uh enemies of the trade federation well rogue squadron that was the the x-wing game right that you had x-wing y-wing mm-hmm and uh, that was that the one that had the black Cadillac or something as one of the unlockable ships. Uh, I think it might have. That that was a good game. I like that. So I mean, I wouldn't mind playing a game based on this. A lot of this, these movie sets look like video games. They mm-hmm. would make great games. <laughs> In fact, doing some research uh, on this movie, I I w- read about a, a game that I used to play. I forgot all about the uh, Episode One Pinball. Do you remember that game? No. It was a uh, it was a kind of a neat idea. It was made by this company. They came out with a Martian some sort of Martian invasion pinball game and it had a monitor up above in the cabinet and the reflection showed down into the actual pinball area that you play. And so when the flippers, you know, which was like a traditional pinball game at the bottom, when the flippers hit the ball into like the targets in the reflection, it like destroyed them. So it was kind of like a hologram. And I guess if you were an arcade, like our local arcade had it, and you wanted to convert, you could buy a kit. And I guess you could slap on new decals, put in a new program into the monitor, and all of a sudden now you had episode one, the holographic pinball game. Hmm. And they had that for a long, long time. Like up until only a couple of years ago. And uh, yeah, it was a cool game. That's one thing about Star Wars is there's the supplemental stuff is pretty cool. There were some great you know, like you said, great books. I'll take your word for it. Uh, but there were some great video games and, you know, some of the toys are a little superfluous. But there were some, you know, great toys I remember collecting when I was, like, in middle school. So, 
I liked the micro machine action figures. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I would set them up in different battles and stuff. Sean's kids love that, so I, I bought them the uh, the little pod racers. In fact, I got one for Sean. It came with three. So the, the two boys got one and Sean got one <laughs> for their desks, little pod racers. And here we go with the Naboo battle. And this is like this giant scene. If you're watching, you see it. There's Gungans everywhere on one side. Battle droids and the ships come from the other side. And I remember this was on, I want to say 60 Minutes or one of those types of shows at the time. And Lucas was bragging that this is like the first all CG scene like this in a movie. There's not like this is just a plain field that he shot and digitally all these elements were added to it and it was just such a point of pride for him and I can see as a technological achievement yes it is something very big but movie wise ugh, so dumb <laughs> I hate this stuff but like seeing Sean's kids you know like they're like I said like that age like 10 12 years old they love this stuff. They can't get enough of it. In fact, I was over Sean's house and one of his kids asked me, uh, hey, who's your favorite episode one uh, character other than Jar Jar, of course. And it's just like I had to grit my teeth and be like, oh, you know, they're all good. <laughs> you know, what am I going to say? I obviously am not going to uh, take down the movie that these kids love to them. But uh, here we go with more uh, Naboo battle scenes. And and like you said, these these droids are just so stupid. The Trade Federation, I guess I read that their strategy was just mass quantities of these things. And uh, rather than quality, they went with quantity. And uh, <laughs> we see that they are not good at fighting. Uh, the one hovering craft that we see the Naboo security uh, army using, uh, it is a Gian speeder. Mm -hmm. It's a military repulsor lift armed with three light-repeating blasters, has a top speed of 160 kilometers per hour. <laughs> it's like, kind of like the land speeder that we see Luke, young Luke drive around in. Yeah, just with three guns attached to it. Yeah, yeah of course. <laughs> and uh, also in our notes, as we are seeing more and more battle droids, which we've seen already throughout the movie, but uh, the battle droids were originally supposed to be as white as the stormtroopers from the original trilogy but uh during pre-production lucas decided to change them to beige <laughs> um oh stinks for that one naboo fighter he, he didn't even make it to the battle <laughs> i don't know why lucas did that the look of the battle droids also is uh partly inspired by african tribal sculpture yeah i read that that's kind of weird that they take their influence from that. And the appearance of these Naboo starfighters is loosely based upon a hairpin. <laughs> uh, it's like a Friday afternoon, it seems, where they're like, all right, let's just base these on something. But yeah, I'm glad that he made these kind of beige looking because as we get into the, the whole Clone Wars thing, you're going to have these white armored clone troopers, which, you know, are the predecessors to the stormtroopers, so you know that they're all white and then you'd have these droids come out similarly white that would be like too much going on you know especially when they're all fighting together in huge quantities it would be tough to distinguish who's who and who's gaining the upper hand here since they're all going to be using blasters against each other anyway 
And obviously, you know, we spoke about how useless the, uh, the droids are against any real opponents. Um, they do pretty well against the Gungans. But, uh, you know, I had long thought about why did he go with droids? Why not have, you know, another alien or human enemy? But I think it just came down to the fact that he wanted to stay with the PG rating like the original trilogy had. He wanted to make this for kids. And you couldn't have a bunch of, you know, real creatures shooting each other and having this huge war yeah. and have a PG rating. So, Which I appreciate. I understand that obviously he was going for the kids in this. Like you said, he had kids himself. I think we... It was even said that Jar Jar was a name that his son gave to this character, you know? <laughs> the same thing said twice. Yeah, 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 the, there you go. And the, the sound of these battle tanks that these droids are using. They actually, ben Burt actually put an electric razor around a metal salad bowl. And then he, like, altered it, like, digitally altered it to go lower. And that's how we get the sound of it. A lot of razors. A lot of... Was it a female <laughs> razor? <laughs> Oh, best part coming up. Yes. <laughs> Qui-Gon now tells Anakin to hide in the cockpit because now they're about to con be confronted by Darth Maul. And I just love Darth Maul's like there and he's like, okay, we'll handle this. And he lets everybody go. He's there for the, the Jedis. We, I think we missed it, but in the hangar, when some of these guys are getting shot, one of the Naboo guards screams and it's the very famous Wilhelm scream that has to be in all of uh, Lucas's movies. Very famous throughout a lot of movies, actually. And the uh, the music that is now playing as soon as uh, the doors open, revealing Darth Maul, is Duel of the Fates. Yes. And this is the first time that a choir was used on the Star Wars soundtrack. It was all instrumental for the original trilogy, but we have voices now in Star Wars music. Which I know you're a fan of. I, know, I think you, you have this soundtrack, right? Um, I don't. I have this this song. You have the track? Yeah, yeah, but not the whole CD. Well, I mean, when you think of the music of episode one, that's all you think of. I mean, this had a, a music video on MTV, believe it, it did. or not. Yeah. It did. Yeah. I remember watching it in astronomy class <laughs> <laughs> with my uh, teacher who was a big Star Wars fan. Wow. We were just watching it and... So psyched, ready for the movie. <laughs> so Anakin, of course, saves the day. He he was told to stay in the cockpit. Of course, that well, that means he can fly the ship anywhere. He's still staying in the cockpit. And uh, saves the day in the hangar by defeating some of the uh, the droids. And uh, now he's flying into space to, to join the battle. Because why not? I don't like how they make it like ev everything he does is by accident. Yeah. Like, maybe I'll try this button. It's like... Don't you know your way around a cockpit? You're this great pilot. You're a pod racer. I don't know. This is not, yeah, not the great pilot that Obi-Wan told Luke about. He should have said, uh, your father was a very lucky pilot. Stumbled upon many victories. But this this part of the movie was my favorite part. You know. This is the, the lightsaber battle between Qui-Gon, Obi-Wan, and Darth Maul. Yes. We, uh, you know, we'd seen many... We'd seen at least one lightsaber duel in each Star Wars movie up till this point. Uh, if you can even call it that in A New Hope, when it's Obi-Wan, yeah. who's so old. Uh, not much action in that one. The Empire Strikes Back one was great. Return of the Jedi one wasn't 
as great. Most of it was Luke just trying to stay away from his father because he didn't want to kill him. Yeah, and then it was symbolic. The rage at the end, but all the uh, choreography that went into their their moves and their fighting in this, I really enjoyed. Yeah, and in fact, Lucas uh, supposedly originally wanted to get Sammo Hung to do the fight choreography. I'm not sure who he settled on, but uh, Sammo Hung was from the, that show Martial Law. Okay. It's pretty funny. Uh, in the just a little more about Darth Maul. Uh, Benicio del Toro was going to play Darth Maul here, hmm. and uh, I guess uh, they ended up changing uh, it to Ray Park. I guess because they kind of lowered the amount of lines he was going to have. So why get Benicio del Toro to utter? What does Darth Maul have? Like three lines. And they're uh, stupid too lines, too. Like, one of the lines is like, at last we'll have our revenge against the Jedi. Revenge for what? Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, you don't even tell us. Uh, so they ended up going with Ray Park, which was probably better. This is the guy that also played Toad in the X-Men films. Right. He's all he's everywhere. He's he's a martial art, you know, genius. The guy does all kinds of stunts. and uh, But the voice is not Ray Park's. His voice is Peter Serafinowicz. And he is probably the most talented guy in the prequel, in this movie, is Peter Serafinowicz. He's awesome. He's hilarious. Very, very funny guy. Very, very talented uh, as an actor, as a voice actor. He had his own sketch show in England. He did that great uh, science parody called Look Around You. I I suggest you try to track that down. And uh, yeah, he does spot on impressions of like, especially Alan Alda. I think I've talked about it in previous episodes. Check out Peter Serafinowicz. He, do you remember, did you watch all of Parks and Recreation? Um, no, I'm starting season five now. Okay, so you haven't seen where they go to England? No. Okay, Peter Serafinowicz plays like uh, this uh, member of uh, British nobility, royalty, that uh, befriends Andy because it turns out they have a very similar uh, intellect. I'll mm. put it that way. <laughs> and he's also in Guardians of the Galaxy. He's part of the Nova Corps, the, uh, the you know, the man with the, the British voice that... Uh, I'm sorry, that was another movie I kind of dozed off. Oh, during. okay, all right, well, never <laughs> we, mind. We have to watch that again while I'm here. Let's just not do 24 hours straight, <laughs> that's all. But uh, you, he, he pops up into things, probably not as well-known here as he is in the UK, but a very talented guy, it's, uh, it's pretty funny. I loved when there's a, I listened to The Best Show with Tom Sharpling, I love that show. And Tom is uh, friends with Peter Serafinowicz, and uh, they were together, I think, at a comic convention one time. And, uh, uh, Tom kind of egged Peter on to like go up to some Star Wars fans to tell, tell them, you know, Hey, I'm the voice of Darth Maul. Just like Tom kind of embarrassing him to, uh, some Star Wars fans. Mm. It's pretty funny. Should we, uh, read all what the... <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I prepared some, uh, some information here for Paul, and, uh, I got the lyrics to the song, Duel of the Fates, that we're hearing in the middle of this, uh, you know, well-choreographed, uh, <laughs> lightsaber duel. Would you want to read the, the actual lyric, or read at least the background, too? Uh, yeah, they're, the words that are chanted are from Robert Graves' poem, The White Goddess, uh, which is a translation of the original version, Cad... Godot, or the Battle of Akron, an early Celtic work of great antiquity, also known as the Battle of the Trees, which was was originally composed by Guion, and is found in the Book of Taliesin. 
A 13th century Welsh manuscript. Yeah, Guion, I believe. Okay. Cora Mata, Cora Ratama, Cora Ratama, Yudha, Cora, Cora. Now this is podcasting. (laughs) Yeah, and it goes on and on. It's a whole paragraph of Cora Ratama, Cora Ratama. And, uh, you know, we're not going to sing it because we don't have the rights to it. But you get the idea. And here we see that. (laughs) <laughs> Every mistake Jar Jar makes in the battle <laughs> works out to the advantage of the Gungans. Jar Jar is the Gungan Anakin. He he earlier was kicking uh, the torso of a battle droid. He got tangled up in its wires. And as he tried to free himself, the blaster still in the hand of the battle droid was shooting other droids around him. <laughs> and now he accidentally dropped a whole bunch of these plasma balls or whatever they Boombas, are. Boombas. Boombas. Or boomas, whatever they're called. And they took out some tanks and droids. Now he just accidentally took out the driver of this one tank. <laughs> uh, it's it's Lucas's attempt at slapstick humor. You know, he's a, he's a fan of the classics and, uh, you know, it just doesn't work here. In this, uh, this Naboo setting, uh, I'm not sure if it's actually this room that we're seeing here. I think it's more of the the throne room that she was in earlier. But this was the the set of the Frankenstein family mansion in uh, Geneva that was used in Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, the movie uh, that came out in 1994. And there's actually had a there was a, uh, an actress that was in that movie, but also in the prequel too. In this movie, uh, Celia Emery, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. So it's a funny uh, couple of connections to that movie. I think even Liam Neeson's late wife was in that movie. Maybe not. Maybe not that one. No, she wasn't. Never mind. But uh, now here we go from one terrible character stumbling upon a a military victory to another terrible character stumbling upon a military victory as Anakin lands in this droid control center and uh, he's uh, experiencing a little trouble. And we get George Lucas kind of intercuts between this lightsaber duel and Anakin's exploits and Jar Jar Binks's uh, battlefield uh, experience that's going on here. Here we see a very frustrating scene to me. I remember not liking this where Obi-Wan almost gets there to help Qui-Gon. Nope, another force field. I, th- I think I referred to them as strawberry walls one time to you. <laughs> <laughs> and And we saw earlier, like at the very beginning of the movie, when the destroyer droid showed up, the Jedi ran away very fast. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Superhuman speeds. And you have to question, Uh-oh. why didn't Obi-Wan use his speed to help Qui-Gon? And Qui-Gon experiences an extreme body piercing as uh, Darth Maul stabs him in the chest. He wanted his belly button pierced. Yeah, that's a, quite the navel piercing. So, yeah. Now, look for... Uh, uh, 1138 is it in this scene i think it is right here so the the jar jar and his fellow gungan are uh, are surrounded by droids he's telling jar jar uh, not to give up of course jar jar gives up now uh, yeah they cut away but when they come back there's a hidden 1138 and uh, i believe that was a cell block number in the original movie uh, a new hope as well yes which is that was a reference to another film that George Lucas did called THX 1138. Yes, and also the that's the, the namesake of his THX 
uh, production logo that you see for sound quality. And uh, that was a, an old movie starring Robert Duvall, which uh, kind of got his start. That and American Graffiti. Um, that, that scene that we just saw earlier of the death of Qui-Gon, uh, that was actually the final uh, scene that was shot during principal photography. Fittingly enough. And here, this is my favorite one minute of the movie. The the duel between Obi-Wan and Darth Maul. Yeah, very well choreographed. There's very few things uh, you, you gotta give up to the movie. This is one of them. And Darth Maul's double-bladed lightsaber, this is the first time I've ever seen it. But I guess if you were a fan of the some of the supplemental material, you would have already seen it in the 1996 comic book series Tales of the Jedi, The Sith War. So this was already a part of uh, Sith mythology, I guess you could say. Some older stories of the Sith. And uh, fortunately for Darth Maul, when it gets cut in half, it still works on one side. <laughs> so they're still able to fight. I'm sure there's a point where if you cut it, uh, that side wouldn't have worked either. But Now he kicks... Darth Maul kicks Obi-Wan's lightsaber down the, the shaft here, and we hear that sound effect. And that is the identical sound effect heard when Luke Skywalker throws his lightsaber away in Return of the Jedi, when he tells the Emperor that he is a Jedi. So, uh, you know, uh, Ben Burt doing a great job, you know, giving us these little subtle elements that we would have never noticed unless we heard about it. But it's kind of cool. Probably still had the masters of all these, uh, these great sound effects. And uh, that's uh, one example of it. I like this little fact. Darth Maul only blinked once during the film, and that's when he's cut in ha half by Obi-Wan <laughs> because, uh, because of the contacts that Ray Park was wearing. It made it difficult for him to blink. Yeah, those contacts must kill. So he was the villain that was always staring at you. Which is cool. Like you said, he's a cool character. And now, uh, <laughs> this is Anakin stumbling his way to the victory as they destroy this whole droid control center. This is where Anakin gains the reputation of being a great pilot. And, uh, he kills some Nemoidians here. Now, I was under the impression that Newt Gunray's gone. I figured he was dead. But, no, he shows up for the other ones. There's 1138 on the back of that droid behind Jar Jar. Lucas kind of subtly puts it. I think even in American Graffiti, there was a 1138 license plate, if I'm not mistaken. So that's kind of cool. Gives you a little something to look for, especially when you're bored at seeing a bunch of uh, Gungans raving. And uh, back to the, the lightsaber scene. Obi-Wan's hanging on for dear life. It looks, uh, looks pretty dire for him, and Darth Maul is just kind of taunting him. I hope Obi-Wan makes it. Yeah, I wonder. That, that's that's kind of what stinks about this, is you know who's going to be the victor. You don't know who's going to die, who's going to live. And yeah, Darth Maul gets sliced, and he falls down, and as he falls down, I didn't notice this the first time, is uh, his body chops in half into two pieces. Now, despite those injuries he suffered, uh, he did survive. Uh, he later appears in the Clone Wars um, the one that started in 2008. The CGI one, yeah. And um, they found his torso and they put it on robot 
like almost spider legs. He's got like six or eight mechanical legs that carry his torso around. Yeah. And uh, supposedly, uh, uh, there was the revised canon. I don't know if this is still considered Star Wars canon, but when Darth Maul just fell down that pit we just saw, he grabbed a maintenance hatch <laughs> and swung into a disposal tube. The impact of the landing knocked him out, and garbage collection droids dumped him into a trash bin and was shifted to an off-world refuse dump. And he existed there for 12 years, a broken half-mad cripple, as it's called here. Uh, their quote, not mine. Until he was eventually rescued by his brother, Savage Oppress. Mm. Well, great, he... great Darth Maul family there. Maul and Oppress. Well, you know, the nice thing about a lightsaber wound is it automatically cauterizes it. True. So you won't bleed to death. Here we see some blue uh, Naboo guards here. And these are said to be the precursor of the the red uh, Imperial guards that we see uh, in Return of the Jedi. Yeah, I love the red Imperial guards. These are kind of like Roman-esque. We're back on Naboo. Everyone's celebrating. Palpatine is smiling. He now uh, reveals, or it's revealed to us through Amidala's congratulations, that he's now the Chancellor. And that kind of sets up the uh, the fall of the, the Republic. We're going to see the Clone Wars really, you know, start ramping up now. Here's our CGI Yoda scene. You know, it seems in a lot of these movies, Lucas really crams everything at the end. You know, all these scenes, especially in Episode 3, when he really crams a lot in there. But everything happens really fast. Now Yoda gives permission to train train the boy, and uh, he becomes a full-fledged Jedi, not any longer a Padawan learner. So, and it, are we seeing a puppet here? I know the CGI was him marching. We're, yeah, we're seeing a puppet. Yeah. But... Yeah, it's, uh, and again, that doesn't bother me. You know, after seeing some of the other things in this movie, who cares? But uh, it, it actually matches what we're used to Yoda looking like. Exactly. From Empire Strikes Back. A little more hair. <laughs> I guess he went a little more bald. And here we see the burning of Qui-Gon's body. Um, I guess, I don't know if you have to be to a certain level of strength in the Force to that your body would just disappear upon death like Obi-Wan's and... and uh, Yoda's does. Oh yeah, you know I never even thought of that. <laughs> After um, all the years of watching this movie, his body doesn't disappear. You know, Anakin's didn't in Return of the Jedi when he was in the Vader suit. Luke burned him, and uh, here they're burning Qui Gon. That's strange. Maybe he's in a coma. <laughs> That'd be a grim ending. Here we have Mace Windu and Yoda kind of talk about the fact that there are Sith now. And Yoda explains that there's always two, a master and an apprentice. That we see holds true all the way into the uh, episodes 4, 5, and 6. But now with uh, Palpatine losing his uh, apprentice, he has to find a new one. And we know who that's going to be. And here's the Naboo celebration. More... CGI nonsense, layer upon layer upon layer of binary code. Now, this this music, this parade song that we're hearing here, it's uh, it actually is melodically related to the Emperor's theme. 
which is kind of a, a nice touch. Very, very subtle, and something I certainly did not pick up hearing this. Jake Lloyd had to get a buzz cut in her rat tail. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and this, this scene of the celebration in Theed reminds me of the celebration we see on Naboo uh, at the end of Return of the Jedi that they added to oh, once again yeah. try to tie the trilogies together. That's on the 2004 DVD set of the original trilogy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Another thing that was shoehorned in there just to neatly put a bow on everything, and I wish it was just left alone. Here uh, we see Amidala hand over to Boss Nass one of those plasma balls you can buy at Spencer Gifts. <laughs> uh, and I love the subtitle, Yahoo! Cheering continues. Yeah. And a very creepy grin. <laughs> Amidala looks at Anakin, and once you know how the story continues, we see it, that how creepy that actually is. But Lucas tried to make the trilogies like mirror each other. You look at the end there, and it was very similar to the celebration after the Death Star was destroyed. Yeah. You know, the kind of parade and the, you know, the medals in that. And this was she was giving Boss Nass something. Um, episode two also ended with a similar scene to what episode five did. Yeah, that's true. That's true, except uh, episode three ended very, very dark. Yes. <laughs> and now we are watching the credits. Yeah, the credits roll, and uh, we know what comes after this. But, I, you know, I would rank this probably the worst of the prequels. I would. Where, where did you put episode one, if you had to rank one, two, and three? Um, probably at the bottom. Yeah. That's where I see it. Episode 3 was a little darker, and that's something that, obviously, this did not have a dark edge at all. We see he probably focused too much on entertaining children, more than uh, the rest of us. And uh, 3 was a little darker. In fact, the only PG-13 to date. I don't think Episode 7 is going to be PG-13. And uh, I, I tended to like that better. I would I would have to rank them 3, 2, 1, you know? Yeah, I probably would as well. Uh, two, what ruins two for me is the uh, trying to show romance between Anakin and Padme and it just being very awkward and unbelievable. Yeah. Paul, if you could just uh, keep talking. I have to use the bathroom. I'll, I will be right back. Okay. So. As Sorry we... about that. I'll be right back. As we look at the closing credits here, uh, some notes we have on this. Anakin's theme is a musical variation on the Imperial March, also known as Darth Vader's theme from Star Wars Episode V. Uh, the film contains no acting credit for the character of Darth Sidious. Uh, after the film's end credits finish rolling... Oh, hold on. The house phone's ringing. Hold on a second. Hello? Hello! Uh, hello, who is this? And this is Watto. Uh, oh, Watto. Wow, how are you? I'm doing okay. I lost, uh, I lost a slave boy many years ago. Hey, what are you going to do about it? Yeah, we actually were just uh, watching and podcasting about that. 
What is podcasting? Is that a type of race? <laughs> no, no. Uh, we're just talking into a microphone and uh, hopefully being listened to by hundreds, if not thousands, of listeners. Hey, wouldn't you give me a cut of that action, eh? Uh, how much would you like? Uh, whatever. Uh, c- uh, credits. Okay. Um, how about dollars? I, I, I do not understand. <laughs> I'm sorry, uh... We don't deal with credits here, Watto. We we live in a galaxy far, far away. All right, all right, shut up, shut up. What are, what are you talking about? Uh, well, see, uh, to us, uh, your story is just a story. It's fiction. It didn't really happen. Okay, uh, are you talking about episode one? Yes. Oh, that's crap. That is all such crap. <laughs> we, we agree with you wholeheartedly, Watto. My wing, my wings don't even work. <laughs> well, we heard that you were crippled and you couldn't walk. I'm lazy. Yeah. I'm super lazy. Why, why do you think I have a little boy go around cleaning? His mother makes me food. My wings shouldn't even work. Have you guys pointed that out? It makes no sense. I'm like a hummingbird. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah, we uh, we didn't really talk about that, but. I, I used to think that. It looked like you are kind of a portly fellow. You might weigh a decent amount for those wings to be supporting your weight. I know, right? Absolutely no sense. In that chance cube, you talk about the chance cube? Yeah, uh, is that chance cube weighted, Watto? Yep, yep, totally. And then uh, uh, Qui-Gon Jin, he cheated, and I should have totally called him out. I knew he cheated. Yeah, why didn't you? Uh, I was... Uh, written a certain crappy way let's say yeah well i'm a terrible i'm a terrible thing (laughs) well no argument there Watto. but we did enjoy you in the uh pod racer video game oh yeah 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 for right to choose i will not sing the song that i sang could i sing it to you (laughs) no for right to choose you probably shouldn't (laughs) All right. Well, uh, anything else you'd like to say before I let you go, Watto? Yeah, 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 actually. I I have a few things I want to say. Okay. I'm sorry I bought a kid and his mother. I'm a monster. I'm a terrible stereotype with all of my dealings. And I apologize. I apologize to my family. I apologize to the Skywalker family. And I apologize to the Republic. Which everyone. <coughs> okay. And also, I'm in episode 7. Alright, bye. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that was an unexpected call from Watto, your uh, favorite Toydarian. Scott. Scott's Scott's just getting back from the bathroom. Woo, do not go in there. Sorry, Paul. <laughs> Yikes. You wouldn't believe who just called us. Who's that? Watto. What? Yeah. What? Oh. He just called and wanted a cut of the action. He wanted some credits because we're talking about him in this podcast. And then he got really emotional at the end, you know, apologizing for owning slaves and Well, he's a piece of garbage. <laughs> Like, he was putting there for, for kids to be like, oh, I like this guy. I had the action figure. I still do somewhere. It's in my uh, closet somewhere. <laughs> and we're supposed to like a slave owner? Shame on Lucas. 
You know, at the end of the credits, uh, I heard Darth Vader's breathing. Yes, yes, that was a little <laughs> something extra put in. I don't think I stayed to the end of the credits. <laughs> no, that was back in the time when that didn't pay off. Right, exactly. <laughs> but yeah. Before uh, Marvel changed everything. Yeah, well, and... we had Nick Fury throughout this whole movie. We didn't need him at the end. <laughs> All right, one more thing, Paul. Uh, this obviously made a ton of money. Uh, I think when you include the re-release of the 3D movie, it, it 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 added to it. I think this this total combines both the original release and the 3D release, which you know, I don't know if that's necessarily fair. But of all the movies ranked highest-grossing films all time, where do you think Episode One is now? I'm going to say 12th. That might be a little low, but I think the Harry Potter movies were pretty high. Obviously, Titanic. I don't know that it passed the original trilogy movies. I'm not sure. I'm going to say 12th. Well, this is not adjusted for inflation. Okay. Okay, so Star Wars A New Hope, as it is called now, nowhere near the top. Uh, Titanic is number two. Okay. Of course, Avatar is number one. So Cameron, <laughs> Cameron has the top two spots. Surprisingly, at the time of this recording, Jurassic World is number three. Wow. Yeah, it's just with inflation, every time a new blockbuster comes out, it makes a showing in the top 25 or so. Number 12 was your guess? That's Minions, believe it or not. <laughs> Isn't that unbelievable? Over $1.1 billion. It's rare for an older movie like this, which, you know, relatively older, to hang on. Jurassic Park is number 19. Star Wars Episode One is number 20. Okay. Yeah, one billion twenty-seven million forty-four thousand six hundred seventy-seven dollars. Wow. Yeah, unbelievable. Furious Seven. Yeah, number five. Wow. Yep. So, uh, you know, it still holds its own. And uh, another point I wanted to bring out is something that I just happened to realize is that we've had a Star Wars movie in every decade. We had one in the seventies, two in the eighties, one in the nineties, two in the aughts. I guess you could call them, and. Uh, now this new one coming in the 2010s. It's hard to believe that, uh, you know, we did have this. And then I don't think of this as being in the 90s, but yeah. uh, it just just made it. Well, and, and now we're looking at six years in a row of Star Wars movies. So Yes. Lucas-less Star Wars movies. <laughs> like, I, like I said, I, I appreciate Lucas for all that he's done. But uh, we have a little fun making fun of this dark spot on our childhood. <laughs> You know, of the 133 minutes that we were watching this movie, there were only 10 to 15 minutes that contained no special effects. Wow. Unbelievable. <laughs> and I remember seeing an interview, I b believe it actually was featured in that red letter uh, review we talked about uh, with George Lucas, how he said that the special effects uh, aren't as important as the story. Mm -hmm. They they help the story, you know, mm -hmm. help it progress or whatever, or support it. But the story is the main part of the movie. But it seems like he did a complete 180 when he made these. It was all about the special effects and the CGI. Yeah. And uh, we're seeing that emphasis shift the other way, you know, with Abrams really pledging to the fans that he's going to focus on practical effects. And, uh, it's a breath of fresh air. I'm looking forward to it. Less than two months away. Me too. Or three months. Excuse me. Well, that'll pretty much do it for this episode of Hitting Play. And uh, if you've 
held on this long. Thank you very much. And uh, uh, as always, you can email us with your comments, suggestions, how George Lucas disappointed you, whatever you got at hittingplayshow at gmail.com, or you can talk to us on Twitter at hittingplay. Now, Paul, you got anything you want to plug? Uh, I won't this time. Um, my Twitter will be coming to an end as the Red Sox season does as well. So. <laughs> yeah. Uh, another devastating fandom to be involved in. <laughs> uh, I am on Twitter. My name there is at MC and Friends. You can follow me there. I am also on Vine. There my name is also MC and Friends. And there I do flip page animation, little humorous cartoons. You can uh, follow me there and check out my stuff there. And uh, if you are listening to us on iTunes, please subscribe to us and leave us a five-star review. It, it helps us out, and we leave uh, shout-outs for uh, fans that leave us five-star reviews, so those are definitely appreciated. We try to be creative with those. And uh, we are also now on Stitcher, so if you are on uh, an Android device and that's the way you choose to listen, uh, that may be an easier way to go for you, and if you know anybody else that uses an Android device, you can recommend us uh, that way as well. Well, Paul, thank you for uh, enduring this with me. It's uh, been a joy to uh, rehash our experiences with this movie and uh, go over all this stuff again. So uh, <laughs> thanks for joining me. Yeah, no problem. It had been since the 3D in the theater that I'd seen this. So <laughs> It's been a long time for myself as well. Well, we have been Paul and Scott, and this has been Hitting Play. Thank you so much for listening. May the Force be with you.